Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Well, I deleted my Twitter account the other day, on Thanksgiving, actually. And I've been thinking about doing this for a long time, in fact. It was a very simple decision, in the end. I'd been on the platform for 12 years, and had tweeted something like 9,000 times. That's about twice a day, on average. So I wasn't the most compulsive user of Twitter, but it did punctuate my life far more than it should have. It was the only social media platform I ever used, personally. I don't run the accounts I have for Facebook and Instagram, and I never look at them. Anyway, the long and the short of it is that I just came to believe that my engagement with Twitter was making me a worse person. It really is as simple as that. I have a lot to say about Twitter and about what I think it's doing to society, but I left it because it suddenly became obvious that it was a net negative influence on my life. The most glaring sign of this, and something which I've been concerned about for a few years, is that it was showing me the worst of other people in a way that I began to feel was actually distorting my perception of humanity. I know people have very different experiences on Twitter. And if you're just sharing cute animal videos or giving self-help advice, you probably get nothing but love coming back at you. But when you touch controversial topics regularly, as I do, especially when you're more in the center politically and not tribally aligned with the left or the right, you get an enormous amount of hate and misunderstanding from both sides. I know there are people who can just ignore everything that's coming back at them, I think Bill Maher and Joe Rogan are both like this. They just never look at their at mentions. But I didn't appear to be that sort of person. I could ignore everything for a time, but I actually wanted to use Twitter to communicate. So I would keep getting sucked back in. I would see someone who appeared sincerely confused about something I said on a podcast, and I'd want to clarify it. And then I would discover for the thousandth time, that it was hopeless. So, Twitter for me became like a malignant form of telepathy, where I got to hear the most irrational, contemptuous, sneering thoughts of other people, a dozen or more times a day. But the problem wasn't all the hate being directed at me. The problem was the hate I was beginning to feel. Hate probably isn't the right word. It was more like disgust and despair. Twitter was giving me a very dark view of other people. And the fact that I believed, and still believe, that it's a distorted view wasn't enough to inoculate me against this change in my attitude. Even some of the people who are most committed to attacking me on the platform, I know that my impression of them was distorted by Twitter. And there might be a few exceptions to this, But I believe that very few of my enemies on Twitter are anywhere near as bad as they seem to me on Twitter. There's just no way around it. Twitter was causing me to dislike people I've never met. And it was even causing me to dislike people I actually know, some of whom used to be my friends. Rather than say anything about why I was leaving on Twitter, I just deleted my account which I now realize made my leaving Twitter open to many interpretations. 
And within a few minutes of deleting my account, I began hearing from people who appeared genuinely worried about me. They saw all the hate I was getting, and they thought it must have driven me from the platform. And several worried I might have been having some kind of mental health crisis. The truth is, when I left Twitter, I wasn't seeing that much hate directed at me, because I had blocked so many people. I used to never block people, but when I discovered that the platform had become basically unusable, I installed a browser extension that allowed me to block thousands of haters at once. I had probably blocked 50,000 people on Twitter in my last week on the platform. It was like a digital genocide. I was seeing especially idiotic or vicious tweet directed at me, and I would block everyone who had liked it. And at the time I thought, well, this is brilliant. Anyone who liked that tweet is by definition beyond reach. There is no reason why these people ever need to hear from me again, and I certainly don't need to hear from them. And it basically worked. So I wasn't seeing most of the hate that was being directed at me. I was seeing some of it, but it was totally manageable. But then I asked myself, how did I become the sort of person who is blocking people by the thousands who just happened to like a dumb tweet as though that one moment in their lives proved that all further communication on important issues was impossible? How did I begin to view people as intellectually and morally irredeemable? How did I begin to view myself as totally incapable of communicating effectively, ever, about anything with these people? How did I give up all hope in the power of conversation? Twitter. I've also heard that many people are interpreting my leaving Twitter as an act of protest over what Elon is doing to the platform, in particular his reinstating of Trump. It really wasn't that. I do think Elon made some bad decisions right out of the gate. And Twitter did get noticeably worse, at least for me. But I'm actually agnostic as to whether he will eventually be able to improve the platform. I doubt he'll ever solve the problem I was having. But he might make Twitter better for many people. And he might make it a viable business. He certainly has the resources to keep at it, even if advertisers abandon Twitter for years. So. My leaving Twitter wasn't some declaration that I know or think I know that Elon will fail to make Twitter better than it currently is. I have no idea what's going to happen to Twitter. Rather, the lesson I was drawing from Elon was not that he was making Twitter worse by making capricious changes to it. The lesson was how one of the most productive people of my generation was needlessly disrupting his own life and damaging his reputation by his addiction to Twitter. And this has been going on for years. Elon's problem with Twitter is different than mine was because he uses it very differently. He spends most of his time just goofing around. But he is now goofing around in front of 120 million people. So when he's high-fiving anti-Semites and election deniers or bonding with them over their fake concerns about free speech, he doesn't appear to know or care that he's increasing their influence. In many cases, he might not have any idea who these people are. Of course, in others, like with his friend Kanye, he obviously does. There is something quite reckless and socially irresponsible about how Elon behaves on Twitter. 
and millions of people appear to love it. I should probably address the free speech issue briefly. There's a lot more to say about this, but before I left Twitter, I was noticing that people seemed really confused about what I believe about free speech. And Twitter being Twitter, it proved impossible for me to clear up that confusion. Many seem to think that I used to support free speech unconditionally, like when I was defending cartoonists against Islamist censors and their dupes on the left. But now I somehow don't support it, because I supposedly have Trump derangement syndrome. Well, first, I've always acknowledged that there's an interesting debate to be had about the role that social media plays in our society. And I'm not going to resolve that debate here by myself. But the fact is, no one has a constitutional right to be on Twitter. In my view, the logic of the First Amendment runs in the opposite direction. It protects Twitter's new owner, Elon, from compelled speech. The government shouldn't be able to force Elon to put Alex Jones back on the platform any more than it should be able to force me to put Alex Jones on my podcast. Of course, I get that social networks and podcasts are different, but Twitter simply isn't the public square. It is a private platform, and Elon can do whatever he wants with it. If we want to change the laws around that, well, then we have to change the laws. I understand and fully support the political primacy of free speech in America. And I'd like the American standard to be the global norm. That's why I think there shouldn't be laws against Holocaust denial or the expression of any other idiotic idea. And the First Amendment protects this kind of speech, at least in the United States. But there also shouldn't be a law, in my view, that prevents a digital platform from having a no-Nazis policy in its terms of service. Because these platforms need effective moderation and standards of civility to function. They are businesses started by entrepreneurs, supported by investors who want to make money. They have employees with mortgages. They have to survive on ad revenue or subscriptions or some combination of the two. Without serious moderation, Digital platforms become like 4chan, which is nothing more than a digital sewer. I'm told that even 4chan has a moderation policy. Hell itself probably has a moderation policy. So-called free speech absolutism is just a fantasy online. Almost no one really holds that position, even when they espouse it. The fact that Twitter's terms of service might have been politically slanted or not applied fairly. I totally get why that would annoy people. And I suspect Elon is improving that. But this simply isn't a free speech issue. No one has a right to be on Twitter. Again, if we want to change the laws around that, we're free to. I'm not sure how that would look, and it seems like it would have some pretty bizarre implications, but that's what we'd have to do. So, my argument for keeping people like Trump and Alex Jones off Twitter is a terms-of-service argument and directly follows from the deliberate harm they both caused on the platform in the past. Here are two men who knowingly used Twitter to inspire their most rabid followers to harass specific people, not just on Twitter, but out in the world. The fact that they might not have tweeted 
please go harass this person, is immaterial. They knew exactly what would happen when they singled out specific American citizens for abuse and spread lies about them at scale to a fanatical mob. They could see the results of their actions. For years, people were getting doxxed and stalked and having their lives ruined for years. Nothing about this was hidden. Elon apparently agrees with me about Alex Jones and said he would never let him back on the platform. But he doesn't agree about Trump. Well, that's fine. I simply recommended that he have a terms of service in place for when Trump proves, yet again, that he is exactly like Alex Jones. And then I hope Elon will enforce his own terms of service. But the crucial point is that this isn't a case where sunlight is the best disinfectant. This isn't a question of opposing bad ideas with good ideas. This is not a case where what used to be misinformation is suddenly going to become new knowledge and we'll all be embarrassed that we first rejected it. This is a case where two men with enormous cult followings weaponized obvious lies for the purpose of ruining people's lives. It is not authoritarian or fascist for me to hope that a private platform like Twitter, would decline to enable that behavior in the future. But we do have a larger problem to deal with. It's still not clear what to do about the social harm of misinformation and disinformation at scale. Algorithmically boosted speech isn't ordinary speech, and many people don't see this. We have built systems of communication in which lies and outrage spread faster and more widely than anything else. Scale matters. Velocity matters. Lies that get tens of millions of people to suddenly believe that an election was stolen because they've been amplified by a digital outrage machine have a lot in common with shouting fire in a crowded theater. Contrary to what most people think, it's legal to shout fire in a crowded theater. But wouldn't we want the owner of the theater to remove a person who was doing that again and again and again? I'm not claiming to fully understand what we should do about all this. I've done several podcasts on and around this topic, and I'm sure I'll do many more, because the problem isn't going away. But being a so-called free speech absolutist at this point is nothing more than a confession that you haven't thought about the real issues. It's like being a Second Amendment absolutist, who can't figure out why people shouldn't be able to own cluster bombs or rocket launchers for home defense. Technological change matters. We've been given new powers, and we're not quite sure how to wield them safely. And now, in the case of Twitter, we have a lone billionaire who's just turning the dials however he sees fit. Again, I recognize that he is totally free to do that but I also happen to have an opinion about which changes will be for the good and which won't. And I get that many people are still seeing this all through the lens of COVID. In some ways, I am too, just from the other side. As I've said many times before, I view COVID as a failed dress rehearsal for something far worse. And I worry that we didn't learn much from it, apart from how bad we are at cooperating with one another or even at having a fact-based discussion about anything now. 
And I do blame Twitter for much of that. But I also get that in Elon's hands, Twitter now seems to many people like a necessary corrective to all the ways in which our institutions failed us during the pandemic. It's like finally we've got someone powerful enough to call bullshit on the New York Times. In that respect, Elon is Trump 2.0. I understand that COVID changed everything for a lot of people. You know, the CDC and the WHO and many other public health institutions seriously lost credibility when they needed it most. I get that many of our scientific journals have been visibly warped by woke nonsense. I understand that COVID has been a moving target, and what seemed rational in April of 2020 was no longer rational in April of 2022, and many people and institutions couldn't adjust. I understand that the effects of school closures were terrible in most cases. I get that many of our policies around masks proved ultimately ridiculous. Of course I understand that the sight of politicians being utter hypocrites during the various lockdowns was infuriating. People literally couldn't hold funerals for their loved ones who died in isolation, while Governor Hairgel was holding a fundraiser at French Laundry. I totally agree that having a pharmaceutical industry driven by bad incentives and windfall profits is dangerous and reduces public trust in medicine. I know that the lab leak hypothesis was always plausible and never racist. I get that the risk-benefit calculations for the mRNA vaccines change, depending on a person's age and sex and other factors. And I've spoken about most of these things many times on this podcast. But the deeper point is that all of this confusion and institutional failure does not even slightly suggest that we'll be able to navigate the next public health emergency with everyone just, quote, doing their own research and tweeting links at each other. And this is where I've been at odds with many people in the alternative media space. Rather than work to improve our institutions and identify real experts, it's like we're witnessing the birth of a new religion of contrarianism and conspiracy thinking, amplified by social media and the proliferation of podcasts and newsletters, and now the whims of the occasional billionaire. The bottom line is that we need institutions we can trust. We need experts who are, in fact, experts, and not just vociferous charlatans. And many of us have lost trust in institutions and experts. Again, far too often for good reason. That's a tragedy. And I've spent a lot of time on this podcast analyzing that tragedy and worrying about its future implications. However, many people are now behaving as though nothing important has been lost. In fact, they're celebrating the loss of valid authority, as though the flattening of everything and the embarrassment of the so-called elites is a pure source of entertainment. These people are frolicking in the ruins of our shared epistemology. And one of the people doing the most frolicking is Elon. The fact that our collective loss of trust has often been warranted doesn't suggest that we aren't paying a terrible price for it or that the price won't rise very steeply in the future. When it comes time to decide which medicines to give our children 
or which wars to fight. There is simply no substitute for trust in institutions and experts. The path forward, therefore, is to create the conditions where such trust is possible and actually warranted in the media, in government, in pharmaceutical companies, everywhere that actually matters. That is not a path where we just tear it all down. That is not a path where we just promote any outsider, no matter how incompetent and malevolent, simply because he is an outsider. We are not going to podcast and substack and tweet our way out of this situation. Anyway, when I look at my own life, and when I look at the controversies and fake controversies that have caused me personal stress and damaged relationships, when I look at the analogous moments in the lives of friends and colleagues and former friends and colleagues, when I look at what makes it so difficult to communicate about basic facts in our society, so much of this conflict and confusion appears to be the result of Twitter. And the truth is that even when Twitter was good, it was making me a more superficial person. Its very nature is to fragment attention. Of course, that sometimes feels great. I was following hundreds of smart and funny people, and they were often sharing articles and other media that I really enjoyed. Twitter was a way of staying in touch, or seeming to stay in touch, with what's happening in the world. And that's one reason why so many people are addicted to it. But even this began to seem like a degrading distraction. Even the best of Twitter was an opportunity cost, because it diverted my attention from more important things. Twitter was making it harder, not easier, to do what I truly value, to read good books, to write, to meditate, to enjoy my family, to work on this podcast. And now that I've stepped away from it, I feel that it was definitely a mistake to spend so much time there. And as it happens, the costs of such distraction is the topic of today's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Cal Newport. Cal is a computer science professor at Georgetown University and a writer who explores the intersections of technology, work, and culture. He's the author of seven books, including A World Without Email, Digital Minimalism, and Deep Work. Many of his books have been New York Times bestsellers, and they have been translated into over 40 languages. Cal is also a contributing writer for The New Yorker and the host of the Deep Questions podcast. And I spoke to Cal a few weeks ago. As you'll hear, he strongly recommended that I get off Twitter. And you'll also hear that I was thinking about it, but not quite ready to do it. I can't quite say that Cal convinced me to do it, but he was yet another voice in my head when I finally did. Anyway, we discuss much more than Twitter here. We talk about everything from the history of computer science to the fragmentation of modern life and what to do about it. I hope you find it useful. And now I bring you Cal Newport. I am here with Cal Newport. Cal, thanks for joining me. Uh, Sam, it's my pleasure. Describe what it is you do generally. You are a man who is rowing in, in several boats at the moment, and it's, uh, we're going to talk about how you accomplish that. But um, how, do you, how do you describe what you do uh, should you find yourself seated next to a voluble person on an airplane 
and uh, they ask you the fated question. Yeah, well, it, it's a more complicated answer than probably I wish it would be. But usually I'll say my, my day job, so to speak, is I'm a computer science professor at Georgetown University and actually study algorithms. So computer science related math. I'm also a writer though. And I've, I've been writing since I was 20 years old. That's when I mm. signed with my first agent and worked on my first book deal. And so I've written seven books. I'm working on my eighth right now. Uh, I'm also a contributing writer at The New Yorker. And in recent years, really, most of my writing has focused one way or another on the impact of technology on our lives, be it our working lives or our personal lives. So, so there is some consilience here that I'm a computer scientist academic who writes public facing about the impact of a lot of the type of technologies we work on as researchers on society, on culture, on our own lives. Mm. Yeah. So we're going to talk about some of your underlying concerns there. I'll remind people your, your books, uh, among your books are Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, and A World Without Email. And these uh, converge on a topic that is of growing concern to certainly me and, and my set, but um, you know, I, w- I would imagine most people listening to us now, which is the, you know, for lack of a better framing, the, the, the fragmentation of modern life. And I, mean, I guess one could step back and argue that it's always been fragmented or that it's been fragmented over the course of many, many years. But I, I think most of us feel like we're living with a level of fragmentation that's fundamentally new. And, and, and so I want us to talk about that and, and try to figure out whether or not that's true. But before we jump in, how has your background as a computer scientist informed your thinking about this issue? There's a couple ways I think these two worlds have, have come together. So one's the obvious way. That's, that's the comfort with the technical background of these various technologies. And in general, also just having lived a life where I am keeping my eyes towards cutting edge and technology, watching the internet develop, watching the impact of the internet, having that technology mindset. Uh, There's a subtle way though, that it's also impacted my writing, which is, and I don't know how to say this (laughs) diplomatically, but I'm very comfortable in my writing going from more philosophical social critique to veering the other direction and saying, let's get pragmatic. You know, let's talk about advice. Let's talk about specific strategies. A lot of writers are very wary about doing this. This is the, the sense, especially in the New York publishing world, that giving advice is lowbrow mm-hmm. and that you won't be considered smart. I've always had as this fallback, well, look, I have a PhD from MIT in theoretical computer science, so I don't need my writing to convince uh, my audience that I'm smart. And mm-hmm. I think that has actually freed me up. And that's been a, a sort of unfair advantage I've had in this field is that I'll go straight for the jugular on specificity and then the next day I go completely philosophical because I don't care so much about you know, what I'm publishing in a magazine or a book having to establish what is my, my, my intellectual credibility because I have this other thing going on. So that cover mm. that my academic career has provided me, I think has unlocked a lot more breadth than what I can tackle with my, my non-academic writing. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, this goes to the question of status and, and where you get it and where you perceive others get it. And it's just fascinating. You, you, you really do have an intellectual alibi because you could be as simple and lowbrow and as broad and as useful as you want to be in any given moment. And the moment somebody thinks you're Tony Robbins, you, you can say, no, actually, I'm a computer scientist over at Georgetown. 
And what you know, not to say that you ever have to say that, but just the fact that you know that people can connect the dots. You you don't actually have to have the the status, you know, fears or the egoic concerns that you're being pigeonholed in in some way that is doesn't fit your your self image and your actual expertise. Yeah, well, that that's for sure happening. And, and anyways, my academic career gives me enough egoic concerns already. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so I could it- I could take a bit of a breather. You know, I can take a bit of a breather in this in this other space. But but I, I mean, I'll just say it, it's it's always struck me to degree to which, especially in idea writing, there often is that reluctance that we'll we'll have an idea that clearly has practical implications. This is like Gladwellian effect, but we'll pull back right at the point of. And here's what you might do about that, because then that would mark this as a different type of book. And I love playing with those conventions. I mean, when I'm in my more self-aggrandizing moods, which are only occasionally, I, I think about what you see in, in cinema with, with auteurs who take genre cinema and mix and match the tropes. And you have a sort of Tarantino-esque approach of let's, let's go low and mix it with high. And this is freaking fun over here. And this is just mix it all together. I, hmm. There should be some more spontaneity and joy and format, I think, in writing. Everything seems a little bit dour these days where everyone is sort of just somberly taking their turn, you know, supporting some sort of dire conclusion. So I, I try to inject a little bit more of that energy into my work. Why is it, do you think, that giving advice and spelling out the practical implications of something seems to diminish the, the gravitas of the work? Or the or the or the the intellectual inquiry that is generating that advice. Well, I have this theory about East Coast West Coast publishing. So this is a a divide that seemed to happen in the '90s, and then going into the the early 2000s, where East Coast publishing coming out of the standard New York publishing houses, and and I'm looking specifically here at nonfiction writing and idea style writing, writing that's in the realm of advice would make sense here, right? In the East Coast world, a lot of these writers, and I'm using you know, Malcolm as my example here, are coming out of journalism. They're coming out of professional writing, and they would look upon advice writing as something that would be more West Coast. This is a Hay House or sort of a Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. Tim Ferriss hack culture. A, a complete, that's a different style of writing that they're separated from. And so you got this big separation where I grew up on all the big idea writers of the 90s going to the early 2000s, the, the Gladwell, the Stephen Johnsons. This was influential you know, writing to me, but it all pulled back before it got to advice. But at the same time, you know, I was a, a teenage entrepreneur during the first dot-com boom in the 90s. I was also living and breathing advice, advice guides, time management guides, strategy guides, Brian Tracy, Stephen Covey, David Allen, all of that world. And I was just immersed in that. And I love that as well. And those two worlds were very separate. Sort of the West Coast world would, would give either, either a Silicon Valley techie advice or sort of Hay House woo-woo self-help style traditional advice. East Coast was more idea writing, came out of more of journalism. And there was a wall between them. They just seemed separate. And you, you also have your own podcast too, which is, uh, you, you, you've joined the lowbrow ranks of all of us who have podcasts. I think there's now, I last heard, um, I can't believe this number. I think the last number I heard was that there were 4 million podcasts. And the last number I believed, I think, was 1.2 million. But I, I, do, I do believe I, I have since heard that there are 4 million. I don't know if you, you uh, have any 
actual propositional knowledge as to how many podcasts there are, but um, it is quite an amazing picture of of what's happening out there if there's anything like that number of podcasts. Well, you know, I said yesterday in a in talk I was giving that I, I think we were contractually obligated during the pandemic that if you didn't already have a podcast mm-hmm. that you were required to start one. I yep. don't know if that was a CDC recommendation where that, where that came from. Yeah. So with my podcast now, I'm just going straight, straight advice. Right. So it's, let's cut out all of the, the middlemen. It's questions and answers. Let's throw in questions. Let's, let's throw in answers. I mean, I'll say another angle that I, that gets in the way of just straightforward, pragmatic philosophy. Okay. I've thought about this. Here's some advice is, uh, the culture right now is one that is really concerned about caveating, right? So, and and there's, I kind of understand where this comes from, but there's this notion of be careful about giving a piece of advice because it might not apply to everyone, or there'll be different people in your audience with different particular circumstances for which it doesn't apply. And if you can't properly caveat it, they might be offended. So there's a, there's a concern about caveating. And it's one of the big messages I always preach about doing advice writing is the writer shouldn't caveat. You need the audience to caveat. So the audience can hear, be, take your swing. You know, here's mm-hmm. what I think. Here's take this or leave it. Here's a big idea. Let me make it, you know, a big, powerful swing. You can caveat it. You can say, this is nonsense or I get it, but it doesn't apply for me because of this circumstance. The audience can usually caveat it and the writing is stronger if you just take a big swing. This is very different than conversation, which is what most people exposure is to interaction. Whereas if I'm talking to an individual and I'm giving them advice that clearly doesn't apply to their situation, you know, then I'm just being a jerk. Mm. You know, it's like, well, why are you telling me this? Like, why are you, why are you telling me your running routine when I'm in a cast, right? It, it, then you're just being a jerk. And so I think people often generalize that, that reality from one-on-one interaction when they're thinking about one-to-many interaction. And then the whole program of giving advice seems nerve-wracking because, man, people could get a fit. Like if, if you didn't give the right caveat, or what about this? Or what if it doesn't apply to that person? And that's another part of it as well. I've long learned just go for it. Hmm. You know, the audience is smart. They'll, they'll adjust the advice to, to apply to their life or not. But that's another thing I think that gets in the way right now of people giving advice is they imagine that tweet that's going to come back. And that gives them gives them some pause. Mm. Yeah, well, the difference between one-to-one and one-to-many is going to show up again in, in our discussion about social media and what it's doing to all of us. But, uh, but before we jump in, what, what's the, the significance of theoretical in your attachment to computer science when you say you're a theoretical computer scientist? I mean, it means the type of computer scientist that can't get another job. Like you actually couldn't get hired at Google? Yeah, because I don't program. Right. So, so theoretical computer scientist, it's a, a broad category that, that captures a few different subfields, but it's basically pen and paper and math. So mm-hmm. we, do, we do math about things relevant to computers, uh, but most of us are pretty bad at using computers themselves. So, so the, the theory of... It, yeah. Is it true that you, you literally don't, program or you're just, you're just not somebody for whom that's your main game? Well, I mean, I know how to, hmm. from my previous training, I was a computer geek as a kid and, you know, was taking university computer science classes while I was in high school. So I, I, I know how to program, hmm. but I, I'm not, I don't program as part of my career as a computer scientist. I mean, I think the last time I, I actually programmed the computer was a few years ago, I was making computer games for my boys. So right. we were, they would come up with the idea and I'd program, but no, my, my job as a theoretical computer scientist, uh, involves no programming. It's math papers. And so you're designing algorithms that can 
solve problems or you're trying to prove that certain problems can't be solved algorithmically, et cetera? Exactly. Both those things. Yeah. Right. Analyzing algorithms mathematically or proving mathematically no algorithm can solve this problem and these conditions, which by the way, people don't realize this is the theoretical computer science goes back to Alan Turing before there were computers. So, so Alan yeah. Turing did the, the first conceptual work about this notion of just a, a step-by-step algorithmic approach to solving a problem. He was thinking about this before there was actually electronic computers. And he has this remarkable paper called On Computable Numbers and Their Application to the Einschlittung Problem, which is a, a German name Hilbert gave to this big open problem. And he did a pretty simple mathematical slash logical proof that proved that most problems, and he formally defined what this means, most problems can't be solved by algorithms. So the, the very beginning of theoretical computer science predates computers, and it was Alan Turing proving that there's many, many more things that we can define than we could ever hope to solve with a computer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I hadn't thought to go down this path, but I'm, I'm just in- interested. How many people would, um, I mean, I'm thinking of sort of counterfactual intellectual history here, how many, how many people would we have, could we have lost and still had the information technology revolution uh, more or less on schedule? When, when, you're, when you start culling the brightest minds of that generation. So like if we hadn't had Turing and we hadn't had Church and we hadn't had von Neumann and we hadn't had Shannon, I, mean, I don't know what you pick here. I mean, you're gonna, you will know the cast of characters much better than I do. But I, I, I dimly imagine that we could have, if we had lost maybe ten or twelve crucial people, we would, we could have waited a very long time for the the necessary breakthroughs that would have ushered in the age of computers. Is that accurate, or or was there so much momentum at that point, reaching back, you know, to Ava Lovelace and Babbage, uh, that we still would have had the information age? more or less when we got it. I think we would have it more or less on the exact same schedule. I think we could have gone back in time and and killed off every figure you just mentioned and probably wouldn't have changed much because essentially the the momentum the momentum that was building was driven so fiercely by World War II. I think it would be very difficult for that momentum to have been halted. And you have to remember there was a a really thriving and complex industry of analog computational machines coming into World War II. And these were used a lot for artillery aiming, calculating artillery tables, trying mm-hmm. to do, if we have like a Norman Wiener style cybernetic human machine interface for better trying to shoot down planes with anti-aircraft guns. There was a huge amount, these machines existed. The idea of going from these analog electronic computing machines the digital machines, there I, I think the key figure would be Shannon. And in particular, you know, he wrote this remarkable master's degree while he was at MIT, this remarkable master's degree where he was studying mathematics at MIT, but had interned at Bell Labs. Mm-hmm. And so he was seeing the electronic relay switches that the phone system, the AT&T phone system used to automatically connect calls so you didn't have to have a switchboard operator he was early to the idea that you could use this physical piece of equipment that's electromagnets and connections to implement logic. And you could then take propositional logical statements expressed in Boolean algebra and implement them as a circuit. 
That probably was the most important idea of any idea because we had a lot of analog electronic computation going. That bridged the cap to digital. And then a lot of people began building digital computers. So, you know, von Neumann, of course, had the big project going at Princeton, and, and he really cracked the architecture that we ended up using. But Penn had their own situation. They had their own computer going. Uh, there was their own digital computer project. There were several going on in Europe. So there, there was a lot of momentum towards this. So once that idea was had that we can do digitally hmm. uh, what had been done analog and World War II was happening, you, you had a lot of momentum towards it. So the only piece I'm interested in that counterfactual is if Shannon had not written that thesis at the age of whatever this was, 26, remarkable, it's the 1930s. If he had not written that thesis, how much longer would it have taken for someone else to figure it out? I bet the answer is a couple of years. Hmm. So yeah, I'm of the belief, you know, Turing, I love Turing uh, as a theoretician and Turing did some fantastically original mathematical work. I also think though, in common culture, he gets too much credit for modern digital computing. There's this notion of he went to solve the Enigma code and invented the first computers to do so or something like this. Right. And it's really kind of unrelated. He, he, he laid these mathematical foundations that were conceptually useful. And he spent a year at the Institute for Advanced Study, and Gödel was there, and von Neumann was there, and Church was there. And there's some cross-pollination of ideas there. But a lot of that was more philosophical and mathematical. Mm -hmm. You can still have the engineering revolution digital computers. You could still have that easily without Turing ever being around. He actually became more useful for people like me in the, in the, starting in the 60s when mathematicians began studying computation. Turing was the guiding light. His, his early mathematical foundations led to the whole field of theoretical computer science. But you could have computers without that field. So I think that would have happened one way or the other. It'd be very hard to stop that revolution. Interesting. So I sent, I don't know when I sent my first email, maybe 1995, 96, somewhere in there. But uh, so you think without Turing and the rest of the Pantheon, I wind up sending that email around 1998 and we're more or less where we are now. Yeah. Or, or there had been a delay. The difference would have been in the late 40s. And, and by hmm. 1960, we're caught up. Hmm. Okay. So actually, I have another question. As far as your background, do you have any experience in meditation or psychedelics? Have those been part of your developmental path? Meditation, I am more familiar with. Psychedelics, I have no experience with. I've dabbled in and out of meditation. I've read some of the standard, you know, John Cabot Zinn public facing mm -hmm. text on on mindfulness meditation. Though I've never been a big practitioner, so I I know the high level basics, right. but am not a practiced hand at it. Right, right. Okay, well, um, let's jump in. How is information technology changing us? Do you think? I, mean, I know it's an enormous scope to that question, but this is very much what you've been focused on. I guess if, if there's any facet of this dark jewel to enter first, I think we should focus on social media first, but um, be as broad as you want initially. How, how have we changed our world and how is our world changing us with respect to the internet and all of the tools it has birthed? Well, I think it's important to make a distinction between the professional and the personal sphere. I, this is the big I would say structuring insight of my work on on this question over the last you know ten years or so was recognizing that the philosophical framework for understanding, let's say, the workplace front office IT revolution, email, personal computers at the desk, is different 
then what's required to try to make sense of what happened with the personal electronics revolution, in particular with the attention economy amplified smartphone-based revolution that began around 2007. They seem similar because in both cases, we're seeing spheres in our life where we're more distracted, if we can use that term kind of ambiguously now. Mm. It seems the same. In the office, I'm on Slack. I'm on email all the time. I feel distracted. At home, I'm on my phone all the time. Twitter's capturing my attention. It, It feels the same. But you actually, it's very difficult to unify them. And where I really began making traction and trying to understand these two effects was separating those, separating those two worlds. And, and so at the very high level, the, the very top level summary of what I think is going on in those two worlds is that in work, in work the, the, the issue is the advent of low friction communication tools transformed the way people collaborated in a, a bottom-up emergent fashion, so not top-down plan, but bottom-up emergent fashion. It introduced ad hoc back-and-forth messaging, digital messaging as the primary means of collaboration. This had a whole lot of unexpected side effects, mainly affecting the way that the, the brain operates when doing cognitive work. It created an environment in which constant context shifting was necessary. Because if there's seven or eight ongoing back-and-forth conversations that are timely unfolding in email, you have to see those messages pretty soon after they arrive so the conversation ping pong can actually happen at a fast enough rate. And all those rapid inbox checks or instant messenger checks actually is a huge drag on cognitive capacity. Our, our brain takes a long time to actually switch cognitive context. So this, this sort of fragmented back and forth has been a major productivity drag. So my, my top line argument about the world of work is these new technologies accidentally made us uh, not only much stupider in a literal sense, but as a drag actually on, a drag on economic growth and productivity, mm-hmm. that there, there's a real problem. Whereas in the, the world of our, of our personal lives, there, I think, issues of behavioral addiction become more relevant. There, I think, engineered distraction, the idea of trying to maximize engagement and the, the weird unexpected side effects that, that that twirls up and creates these whirling dervishes of unexpected consequences that have these huge impacts on, on health or the, the health of the body politic. That's a, it's a different type of thing that's happening there. All of that comes from the consequence of what happens when we consolidate the internet to a small number of privately controlled platforms and play the game of how do we maximize engagement. That turned out to have a bunch of dangerous side effects to society and how we live. Mm. So they're similar superficially. We're distracted. But the source of that distraction and, and, and the impact and therefore the solutions is very different, I think, between those two magisteria. Yeah, interesting. Well, I think when you initially made that division a few minutes ago between work and private life, many listeners were anticipating you it being a story of the good and the bad. So the bad is visited on, on private life. Uh, you know, we were, we were taking our smartphones with us to the dinner table. Our kids are buried in screens. Society is unraveling based on the uh, perverse business model that has is um, you know mining our attention uh, and amplifying divisive content, but over on the work front, I think people were expecting to hear that our productivity is just enormously better based on these tools. But that's not where you landed. Uh, let's let's take that piece second, and um, let's start with social media and private life. If I'm not mistaken, unless something's changed, you don't use any social media, right? Right. That's the, that is the source of my, my anthropological Margaret Mead remove, you know, mm-hmm. from which I can actually observe what's going on without being entangled in it myself. 
So no, I've never had a traditional social media account, no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram, no Snapchat. I like to observe that world. I think I'm the last person perhaps, you know, of my age, who's also a writer who's never had an account. But to me, it's really important to, that there's at least someone out there who's trying to observe these roles with a little bit of distance. So how do you observe them apart from just the effects on friends and colleagues who stagger away from their Twitter feeds complaining about everything? What You must be on these platforms as a, yeah. as a lurker just seeing what's going on. Yeah. So when, I, when I'm working on a particular book or article, I'll go onto a platform. And so for some of these platforms that will require like borrowing an account, for things like Twitter, Twitter's actually public. So you can go and look at individual people's Twitter feeds directly without having to actually be on Twitter yourself uh, and tweeting. So Twitter's actually an easy one to study. You can, you can go check out what people are up to. TikTok was probably, I wrote a TikTok article for The New Yorker earlier this year. You know, that, that's a little harder. So I had to borrow accounts and then also watch videos. So you can actually find TikToks. It turns out you can find them posted online. You can watch various TikTok videos. But so, so different platforms yield different challenges uh, when, you're, when you're trying to actually go in there and observe. Right. Now, if it's not immediately obvious, it will soon be obvious that you're an enormously disciplined, structured person. Why go to zero with this? Why not just the minimal use or the, the intelligent and disciplined use of some or all of these platforms? Well, I, you know, and I, I pitched that. When I, when I talk to what people should do, this, this philosophy of digital minimalism is not about going to zero. The reason why I'm at zero is because I started there. So it's, it's a different situation. So what I've been saying no to is the addition of social media into my life. So someone will say, look, you should use Twitter for X, Y, and Z. I'll look at X, Y, and Z and say, none of that is compelling enough for me to actually extend the energy to join this. So, so what kept me at zero was the fact that through circumstance, Hmm. I started at zero, where most people casually signed up for the, these networks when they were still exploratory and exuberant and interesting and fun for various contingent reasons, which aren't even that interesting, I didn't. And so I was just used to not having them. And then after they became ubiquitous, that I had this interesting remove. And, and over, over the years, people have made arguments, well, you could get advantage A or advantage B. It always seemed too small to me. You know, there's nothing there that was compelling enough to say, okay, I definitely want to sacrifice this time. And I was always very wary about what it was going to do to my attention. So I think if I right now had a very aggressive social media presence that I was trying to reduce, it's unlikely that reducing the zero would be the right answer. But as someone mm -hmm. who's always started at zero, nothing has been compelling enough to actually push me to add a little bit in. Right. Although you're an author of many books, you, you write New Yorker articles, you've got a podcast, uh, it would be quite natural for you to use some or all of these channels as marketing channels. And you could also do that in the way that I do most of my social media in that I don't do it at all, right? I mean, say I have a team that posts things on platforms that I never even see. The only thing I'm engaged with, I think, um, in some respects, predictably to my detriment, is Twitter. And, um, you know, we'll talk about that. But you could approach all social media the way I approach Instagram, which is I, I literally never see it. Right. And yet something in my name is going out on Instagram to promote something that I'm doing, whether it's this podcast or the Waking Up app, or if I was going to go to Australia and do a, you know, a lecture series, well, then having social media accounts that could tell the good people of Australia that I'm headed their way, that proves pretty useful. So I, I'm 
a little surprised that no one has, certainly none of your New York publishers have um, browbeaten you into doing something like that. Well, they used to. Mm. It's just a hard case. Yeah, there's my fourth book. This would have been 2012. I do remember going to a meeting at my publisher, Random House in, in, in New York City in the skyscraper, and they brought in their, their social media specialist to be like, okay, let's walk through your social media strategy. I remember thinking, oh, this is not going to go well. They're spritzing you with oxytocin and, and uh, lattes. and yeah. Essentially. But now it's sort of part of my brand as well, right? So the fact that I'm removed from this is part of that makes sense. Okay, this gives us an interesting perspective. But, but I'll say, because I was never a full-time writer, I was already in the mindset of there's tons of things that would be useful to my writing career that I just can't do. I mean, when, when I was writing books that maybe people would have thought were more in the business space, the thing to do if you want to be a, a very successful business author is you need to speak 50 to 100 times a year. Like most of those mm-hmm. authors do a one-year-on, one-year-off rotation. They speak 50 to 100 times one year. They write the next book the next year. And I just had no interest in that. I was a professor, a full-time professor. I had young kids. And so I was already in this mindset of like, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff to be helpful. I, but look, I'm trying to figure out how to do this while I have other things going on. So I was already in this mindset of not an any benefit mindset, but in terms of uh, what are the big wins I can do that aren't going to take up too much time. But also my theory on social media and writing is social media does really help sell books, but not so much the author's accounts. So mm-hmm. I'm sure social media has been very useful to my book sales because it is a person-to-person medium that people can use to talk about my books. I read this book, I like this book, and it really can help sales. If I'm talking about my own book on social media, it's always been my theory that the impact there is more limited. Announcements are useful, but I have an email list. You know, I mean, this is just my mindset of good enough, the sort of a satisfying mindset. <laughs> you know, like mm. this works. I'm writing. I'm thinking clearly. I'm worried about polluting my, my cognitive space. People seem to find my books. There's a lot of things I could be doing. I don't do a lot of them. My publishers have made peace with that. We still seem to move a fair number of copies, and I'm happy with that. But no, yeah. I hear you. I've, I've heard these before, but a lot of these benefits, when you really nail down, is like, yeah, that's nice, but it's not critical. Yeah, you, you pretty much share Jaron Lanier's view of the situation. Is there any way in which you disagree with him? I, you know, I'm not, I haven't read enough of, uh, of either of you on this topic to know if there's any daylight between you. Is, is there? Yeah. I mean, I, I love Lanier's work. You know, I mean, I think he's brilliant and his approach was very influential to me. You are not a gadget's very influential because it introduced humanism into the discussion of these sort of techno impacts. So he really, he really comes at these consumer facing technologies from the perspective of what are their impact on uh, humanity, your humanity as a person, your self-definition your weirdness, the, the corners that make you special. And he mm-hmm. really worries about the, 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 the way that these, these platforms force you to fit your way, yourself into these interface drop-down box selections, the way it, it breaks in you know, connection. He's a way more radical thinker than I am, though. So there, there, uh, there is a lot of daylight, but there's a lot of daylight mainly just in the way that we, we almost have different programs going on here. I think his is a philosophical program mm-hmm. about humanity in the age of digital reduction. And mine is more of a expository slash pragmatic program. So why are we seeing these effects? What are the dynamics, the, the socio-techno dynamics that are causing these things we see? And what can we do about it? The what can we do about it with Lanair, I think, is either thought experimenty, 
mm-hmm. like his ideas for rebuilding the internet around micropayments for data or just let's just throw out this philosophy. So he's a more radical thinker. He's smarter than me. So, <laughs> so I think it's, it's almost like we're playing a different, we're playing a different, I was going to say playing a different instrument, but that also has a literal truth because he's a, he's a master of he, all he these. He plays a thousand. Things. Yeah. Yeah. He plays yeah. a thousand. So that's he's true. got longer dreadlocks than you do. Yeah. He's uh, a no cooler doubt. guy than yeah. me. Let's just, let's just call it straight. Mm. <laughs> he's like a cooler, more punk rock, techno mm. critic, VR punk, just a kind of a cool guy. I'm not. Well, well, you guys share the concern, which I certainly share, that the underlying business model of the internet has harmed us in ways that st- would still surprise some people. I mean, some people have not paid enough attention to what has come to be known as the, the consequences of the surveillance economy to know just how much of what they don't like about life online and even increasingly life in the real world has been driven by this bad advertisement business model. What do you think we should do about that? I, mean, I agree with you that Lanier's idea that we're going to pay everyone for their data in some amazingly efficient way, that I, I don't understand how that's going to work. Or, and even if it would work, I'm not, I, I don't quite see the bridge from where we are to there. So what should we do? And, what, and what do you, how do you think about your own digital work like your podcast and any, anything else you're doing and putting out into the world? Uh, how do you try to navigate in the space of possible business models? Well, this was definitely a, a place where I generated some friction, especially with the 2019 book, Digital Minimalism, which was the book that was more on this, more on this space. And, and I had, there was a lot of friction, I would say, with journalists in particular, because by, by 2019, there had been a, a sort of turning of perspective, right? So we, we'd had this Trump-driven turning up perspective where mainstream media now perceived the social media platforms as an evil empire. There was, there was th- this shift in, from the nerd gods are going to save us to the, uh, the nerd gods are going to destroy us. And I got a lot of friction from them because my, my approach to these issues was much more personalized about, about individuals and the reactions to these technologies in their lives. And the real push there was for systemic, probably legislative change. And I didn't see a lot except for on the margins. That was going to be usefully done with legislation. I wasn't that interested in the good guy, bad guy storylines either. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is, mm. you know, an evil genius who planned Cambridge Analytica in a hollowed out volcano. And if we can stop him, whatever, we can have universal basic income. I mean, there's these, a lot of things were being connected together. Mm-hmm. Whereas I come at I came at it more I come at it more from a cultural zeitgeist style perspective, which to me actually gives me a lot of optimism because the, the basis of my my argument about the internet is like Lanier, I'm a huge internet booster, have very fond memories of sort of pre-consumer web internet and the promise of the internet in its early days. I think the primary source of issues, yeah, it's that business model, but that business model wouldn't have so much teeth if it wasn't for the cultural reality that we have temporarily consolidated so much of what is internet traffic to a small number of very large walled garden platforms. I think the, the internet unleashes its sources of discovery and innovation and joy and connection and entertainment and distraction. It does that best when it's distributed and fragmented and niche and weird. Mm. That it's the internet is a, a set of universal protocols that anyone with any computer who's plugged into any nearby network can talk and therefore join in. It's a very democratized, distributed medium. 
when we said let's consolidate that to three companies and they'll have their own private version of the internet running in giant server farms, that's where we got a lot of problems. I think for a lot of reasons, we are refragmenting back towards a more distributed niche internet. I think the period of the social media giants consolidating most internet traffic is a was a transient period whose peak has passed and is now starting to, to fall apart. So I actually think we're heading towards a much better internet. And none of that really required a villain to be slain. None of that really required a you know, complicated new legislative package to be passed. None of that really has anything to do with politics. It's social technodynamics. And so I'm actually, an, I'm more, this is daylight with me and Lanera if we're going to try to, to mm-hmm. isolate that. I think he's more pessimistic about this. I'm less. I actually think it was a, the unstable configuration here was one in which the internet was being consolidated by a small number of companies that required a huge amount. If we're going to use sort of physics terms, it's like a huge amount of input energy in the system to hold this unstable configuration. The rest state is much more distributed. And I think we're, we're, we're heading back. We're going to swing back to a cycle that's, that's more distributed and democratized and weird. And that's going to actually be much better. So you're actually pretty bearish on these consolidated monopolies maintaining their monopolistic control over conversation. So you're, you're, it sounds like you think Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, e- even under Elon, I mean, we, we can talk about that in a moment because that's its own unique case now. But it sounds like you think these are going to, if not completely unravel, they're, they're going to unwind to the point where much more is happening outside their walls than inside their walls. Yeah. And, and I think TikTok is actually the thing that kicked this off. So, so I had an article, I did a New Yorker piece on this about, it was called something like TikTok in the fall of the social media giants. But my argument is that the giants' main defense was this competitive advantage of having these very large network graphs that they were able to generate through first mover advantage. So you have these, these mm-hmm. large connections of users. So first of all, it's just you have interesting users and you have this rich network of connections between them, the follow relations, like relations, friend relations. And as long as they were focused on, we are going to, I mean, the, the, the whole job of these companies, of course, is we're going to generate engagement. And as long as their, their engagement was being generated from these social graphs, it was a, an impregnable position. It was very difficult to dislodge them. So you look at something like Twitter, why is that so successful for those who use it at, at being a source of engagement is you have not just a lot of interesting people, but that's part of it, right? If you go to Parler, if you go to True Social, one of the big issues is there's just not enough interesting people there to generate enough potentially interesting content. But it's also although, this although in their defense they have all the interesting Nazis. Well, if, so if you're interested in interesting Nazis, <laughs> that's true. They have a better selection of interesting Nazis than, than Twitter. So I'll give them that. But the other thing that Twitter has, and I think this is underlooked, is actually all of these different follower relationships because. Twitter actually operates as a distributed cybernetic curation algorithm. So, so what the way Twitter surfaces these things that are really interesting, and this is different than something like TikTok, which is purely algorithmic. It's actually the, the aggregate of all of these hundreds of thousands independent retweet decisions. And because you have this, this nice power law graph topology and that mm. underlying follower graph, what you get is this rapid amplification of things that are interesting. It's a bunch of human decisions plus a network structure that does a really good job of surfacing stuff that captures people's attention. Of course, that has a lot of side effects we can get into it. But that, that's a, again, you have this big asset, which is this graph, parlor, gab, whatever, 
can't replicate that. They just can't get enough people and enough connections. It's just, there's a first mover advantage there. So what happened with TikTok is they came in and said, forget that. Forget this idea that we're going to have some sort of competitive advantage embedded in a social graph. Instead, we're just going to use algorithms. Anyone can generate content. It goes into one big pool. We have an algorithm that looks at that pool and selects what's best. And we, we talk about Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and those algorithmic terms, but we really underestimate the degree to which actual human created links in a social graph play a huge role in how mm-hmm. those algorithms work. TikTok doesn't care about any social graph. It, it's all algorithmic. So when Meta is starting to chase TikTok because they have to get their quarterly earnings up. So in Instagram and in Facebook, they begin to add less social graph-based curation and more purely algorithmic-based curation. They're leaving the castle walls. They're leaving Mm. the first mover advantage they had built up on we have the social graph and no one ever again is going to get 1.7 billion people to manually specify a lot of people are their friends. They're leaving that advantage to play on TikTok's turf. Without that advantage, They are competing with anyone else who's trying to offer engagement and they're vulnerable. And I think there's a lot of other sources of interesting engagement once they no longer have that advantage. There's podcasts, there's streaming, there's apps, there's games, there's niche networks. And I think they're vulnerable. And and so the only player there who could potentially survive this is Twitter because they are for now, all of their value proposition still comes from their underlying social graph. And by going private, they can resist the investor pressures that push Meta to say we have to chase TikTok and we have to chase algorithmic curation. So, so, I mean, Twitter probably has the best chance of surviving as not the town square, which I never thought it really was. Uh, that's a different topic. Hmm. But as a, an interesting service that there's a non-trivial amount of people who, who get some enjoyment out of it. Hmm. Interesting. So, so to summarize what you just said, the reason why Meta, to take the largest example, could lose its monopolistic power here in the face of TikTok is that by trying to play TikTok's game, it is giving up its intrinsic monopoly over network effects and is essentially entering the, the entertainment business. And then the question is, well, what's more entertaining? And then, there's, then, then you suddenly have a lot of competition that you didn't have when you were just trying to leverage the, the social graph that you have and no one else has. TikTok is the Visigoths coming into Rome, you know, and if it's not them, there's seven other barbarian tribes that are going to follow them. I mean, when Rome fell, it was tribe after tribe, group after group, you know, all taking their, all taking their swing at an empire that had lost its, its financial core that could protect it. It's, I think it's the, it's the same thing. And mm-hmm. they have to. The problem is they have to go after TikTok because they're public and they're losing users and TikTok is eating their lunch. But I, I quote an executive, so in this one piece I wrote, an executive who left Facebook to go to TikTok. And basically what he was saying, backing up my, my thesis here, was you guys are good, you guys being Facebook here. You're a social company. This is what you figured out how to do really well. Build, maintain, and extract value from a social graph. Like You are not an entertainment company. TikTok is an entertainment company. You're not going to play this game well. You don't have any expertise here. It's not in your DNA. And so you're in danger if you come over here. And the problem with TikTok, of course, so people were asking after that article, so do I think TikTok's going to be the winner? Like, no, that'll also, that, that has a two-year half-life, Max. The point is there's 17 other TikToks coming behind it, mm-hmm. 17 other zeitgeisty, incredibly engaging things. As long as the game is just, make me look at this phone, uh, it doesn't matter that there's a social graph here, it doesn't matter that my cousin's on here, it doesn't matter that the, the three sports stars I like are tweeting on here or whatever, then everything is 
everything's competition with everything else. You know, I mean, you, eventually you could just have, you know, ASMR, <laughs> pleasing mm-hmm. flashing lights, you know, <laughs> whatever. I mean, you're playing, you're in that ball game at that point. So I don't use TikTok. I don't, I'm not on it and I, I don't actually consume it. Uh, I've seen, you know, a handful of videos on, on YouTube, I think, but uh, you know, so I get the format, but you're an algorithm guy. What, why is their algorithm so good? I mean, it's just, maybe it's goodness is being exaggerated to lay people like me, but the, the, the rumor is it's got this magically powerful way of serving up content to people that drives dopamine in a way that no one else has quite managed? Well, it's an interesting question because we don't know exactly, but we have some insight into what the algorithm does. There was one study in particular at the Wall Street Journal Commission that's really useful where they created hundreds of fake TikTok accounts so they could systematically try to probe what was going on with the algorithm. And there has been some leaked information out of ByteDance. But as best I can tell, TikTok doesn't have a magic algorithm. What they have is an all-in commitment to algorithmically served content. So what their algorithm mainly does is it watches how long did you watch each video and it labels it with that. And then it has all of the videos, like any of these other machine learning uh, platforms or algorithms, you know, all the videos are embedded in some sort of multidimensional space, right? They've been embedded in some sort of multidimensional vector space in which there's a distance metric preserved. So they have some notion of this video is this similar to this video and this mm. similar to that video. It's just a mathematical way of how do we label things, these different videos, and, and measure how close they are to each other. And so it's just figuring out what you like by how long you watch it and then serving up for the most part things that are closer to the things you watch more with a little bit of randomness. So it's an ex- exploitation, exploration trade-off. A little bit of randomness to make sure there's, there might be other components within this multidimensional space that are interesting to you. So making sure they're not missing it. But it mainly just says, how long did you watch each thing? That's the main information it looks at. But it, but it turns out that if you commit to that, and that's what they're doing, a beautiful full screen interface. So if you look at TikTok on a phone, there's no menu, there's no buttons. The video spans the entire surface of the phone screen. Mm. And it's simplified down to, if you're bored with the video, swipe it up and they'll serve you another video. When you're bored with that, swipe it up. And that's the whole experience. So they're, they're fully committed to, we will serve you everything from this algorithm. And that's all the algorithm does. But it takes about 40 minutes. That's what the Wall Street Journal found. If you swipe on videos as soon as you get bored for about 40 minutes, it will seem as if this algorithm has known you most of your adult life. I mean, it will just hone in like a laser on three or four things that like you really like. And in really interesting ways. So, so that simple idea, it's just a simple feedback loop. How long did you watch each thing? Let's show you things closer to things you watched longer. It takes about 40 minutes till you feel like it's your best friend making you a mixtape of videos. Mm. And, and so it's a commitment to algorithmic curation, not a magic algorithm. Facebook has all this other legacy stuff, people posting and liking and following in the Facebook group and your wall and all this stuff. There's all this legacy interface on there. TikTok got rid of all that, fully committed. We'll just keep serving you stuff. You'll like it. Trust us. It seems like it must be importantly similar to what Netflix is doing, but the time course of the training must be much shorter because you're, you, it's learning about you every you know, 30 seconds that you decide to swipe or not swipe for these short videos. Yeah, it's the same general algorithm as, as Netflix recommendation, but right, exactly. In 40 minutes, you maybe saw... 150 videos. Right. And 150 movies you watch on Netflix, that's going to take a lot longer. 
also there's a lot of legacy overhead involved when we're talking about filmed media. There's I'm watching the show a lot because I I watched The Office when I was at this age and mm-hmm. it's influential to me. This is a movie that has a movie star. It's branded content. It's content that has its own marketing behind it. So it, it's a different world. TikTok got rid of all that. All of the cultural overhead is off of this content. It's all pure. You don't know who these people are. You don't care who these people are. It's just the flickering images you're seeing in front of you. So they just they took something that everyone was doing to some degree and purified it down to its essence. And, and sort of not surprisingly, when you purify something attractive down to its core essence, it becomes almost uh, uncontrollably attractive. It's interesting. So described in that way, again, I, I literally have never used TikTok as, uh, you know, as it's intended to be used as, as the app installed on a smartphone. So uh, I don't have this experience, but it sounds like almost like um, the sorting hat in, uh, you know, Hogwarts, where it's, it's actually a, a mirror uh, held up to your mind that if it is performing, you know, as you describe, it's actually telling you what you care about in a way that you may be loath to admit to yourself. But if the measure of your caring is you will happily spend much of your life staring at that piece of glass as a result of, of this particular tuning, it's, it's hard to argue that it's not accurate. I guess that my, my one question is, is there enough diversity of content and is there enough a kind of leakage to novelty once it has kind of got your number that it would discover other interests or adjacent interests or capture all of your interests? I mean, I can imagine, you know, a lot of people would boot it up and the algorithm would quickly learn that what they like are, you know, beautiful people and fast cars and fitness videos and popular music and just half a dozen things that that more or less set in their stage of life uh, everybody likes and you're just getting the most kind of captivating echoes of of those highly predictable sources of fascination. I mean, is it much better than that? Are you actually discovering that this understands exactly how much I love James Joyce and archery and everything else? Well, I mean, from what I understand, it first of all, it's wandering more Mm. through the space of of potential deep interest, right? So it's it's not that, okay, now has a stable, it's captured stably the things you're most interested in. I mean, probably the right, if if we're going to be a nerd here, probably the right Harry Potter reference would be the mirror of Erised. Uh, as opposed to the to the sorting you've got map. you've got and, a and deeper I, Harry Potter game than I've got, but um, I would put my and, and put my daughter in my the defense, Harry Potter Olympics at this point. So um, yeah, yeah and, and that's my defense. Is we just read this with our kids. So. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully I get yeah. some back. And and it took me reading it to realize that Eris said his desire backwards because I I'd never uh-huh. read the book before. So unlike that, which gives you the optimal thing that you most desire, it's more of a walk. That's part of the spontaneity of it. So it, it sort of shifts. I also, however, think it's way less stable than what you're talking about, right? So, I mean, it's not reflecting back necessarily what are your deepest interests. It's reflecting back what presses your buttons most effectively. Mm -hmm. And so it's unstable. And and sometimes for some people, it could actually be uplifting what it leads you to. For sometimes, for a lot of people, it could be trivial. If we're talking about button pushing, you get a lot of weird stuff on there that's playing with like sounds and the way that sounds affect people's brain stems and just pleasing visuals. Like you get some of this really basic brain stem stuff, right? Because again, if we're not differentiating, it's just what's pressing your buttons, that's that's a wide variety. And then some people you can end up somewhere kind of dark. It can it can uh, radicalize you or just bring you to a weird place. 
I mean, we hear about a lot, for example, now we're learning about the younger generation, the whole Spooner phenomenon and the way that TikTok brings them into these worlds of uh, self-diagnosed illnesses that begin to take over their life and the way they feel. So it's very unstable because it's not trying to reflect back your deepest interests. It's trying to wander you through a landscape of things that are particularly good at pressing the emotional, psychophysiological buttons that keep you staring at that little glowing screen. Yeah, I think there's reason to be concerned that it is an engine of social contagion, which is, um, yeah, I mean, people are discovering the uh, the the new art of of self neuropsychiatric diagnosis and discovering that they have Tourette syndrome or they they want to have Tourette syndrome. You know, it's getting weird out there. What do you think about Elon's adventures and misadventures with Twitter? Well, the article I wrote about Twitter when he Elon first started showing interest in it is I was trying to make the argument that the importance of Twitter is way more specialized than the coverage would imply. And then in particular, Twitter plays this critical role in the lives of journalists. And because of that, from from the perspective of the media world, Twitter is the town square. Twitter is like the most important thing. There is a, there's a, a huge interest in sort of who controls it. There's a notion that, that Twitter establishes the boundaries of the digital Overton window. So you have to fight over every inch of this, right? So if that Overton window shifts 15 degrees on some sort of metaphorical scale here towards the center, and that's going to drop off, you know, 15 degrees worth of issues that you find are important. And, and so to them, it's like the most critical thing. Hmm. For most people, it's not. Most people don't care. Most people don't use Twitter. Most people are being impacted by Twitter indirectly. So that's my first thing was it's, it's not a global town square in that way. My second point about it, though, is that right now it's having a comparable impact because the, the elite voices, so the people who do set a lot of corporate, educational, sort of just even cultural policy, are heavily engaged in Twitter, but they don't use it as a town square so much as it's being used. I thought the Coliseum was a much better analogy, that, that Twitter has evolved, devolved, I should say, basically into a place where different tribes send their gladiators to do battle. And that for most viewers, it's let, let me let me log on to see the fight. Let me see if the mm-hmm. lion eats the Christian. You know, ooh, so and so's they're uh, they're taking a stand on this. Okay, and here comes the mob to get them on that. We'll see what's going to happen there. Oh, they're eating their own over there. So it's spectacle. It's become spectacle more than it is town square. So so I I don't think it's important for most people directly in their lives. I think for elites, it's a coliseum, and it's a it's a a very entertaining show to watch if you're at all adjacent to that world. Elon Musk taking it over. I think the idea of moving Twitter private for those reasons I talked about before is probably critical to its survival. I think it can hold on as a a profitable, not $500 billion meta valuation profitable, but like a perfectly profitable, fine investment that's a good engagement engine for, you know, 100 million engaged users. I think it could definitely do that if it goes private. So I think that's smart. I think two, probably these concerns, media concerns about content moderation. I think a lot of that is overblown. I, I think at you know at best we're thinking about a more centrist Overton window. But again, if you see this as the the ground on which the digitally approved Overton window is set for online discussion, then every degree makes a difference. So I think you're seeing a lot of that reflected in the wrangling that's going back and forth, and a lot of this seems very 
sort of stratified and elite. I mean, again, it's it's it has become a, a coliseum for elites to do combat and watch other elites do combat with this spillover effect onto elite public discourse. And so I have no dire predictions about a investor taking over Twitter. That's probably in Twitter's mm-hmm. best interest. And I, I take all of the fury about this with a grain of salt because I think it's incredibly niche and specialized to people who actually care. Yeah, it really is amazing how distorting it is to spend a lot of time there and to lose touch with the fact that most people are not there. And yet, it's, it's, you know, that's kind of half of the epiphany. I mean, and it's, it's somewhat undercut by the other half. So, I mean, that epiphany is often summarized as, you know, Twitter is not real life, but it becomes real life in all kinds of, you know, more and more in all kinds of surprising ways. And you know, I guess Trump was the, the apotheosis of all that. And if you weren't on Twitter, and in some cases, even if you were and you were just siloed, you didn't really understand the Trump phenomenon, right? You just you didn't understand that there was this alternate information ecosystem where people had a, a fundamentally different view of reality. And you know, to some degree, that's you know, getting balkanized in, in other ways on some of these other platforms you, you mentioned, but uh, you know, we may, may all come rushing back onto Twitter. But it's just a, it's something I appreciated more in, in retrospect than in real time in, in the run-up to 2016. You know, I, I see what I should have seen or interpreted correctly at, at the time that you know, when I would tweet about something political and I would say something derogatory about Trump and something, you know, however mealy-mouthed in support of Hillary Clinton, what was coming back at me on Twitter and in YouTube comments and, you know, just in various channels was so, it was, you know, orders of magnitude more enthusiasm for Trump than there was for Clinton. And, you know, it was surprising to me given, you know, how, how obviously unqualified he was to be president of the United States. I mean, whatever you think about Clinton, you know, Trump would really should not have been president. And that was just so clear that to see this coming back at me, I, I found it kind of uninterpretable. And yet it was a clear indication of just where the energy was politically, even in my own channels, which had been somewhat segmented against the forces of, of Trumpistan, just given my intellectual and, and political biases at that point. This claim that Twitter isn't real life is something that you know I wish were true, given the nature of Twitter, but it's it's not quite true. Do you, it sounds like you think it's going to become more true eventually. Well, I mean, it's possible that Elon Musk is going to accidentally solve the problem of Twitter because if if, if he enters and takes over Twitter, and for various reasons of political valence, you have let's say a lot on the left, journalists, politicians, etc., leaving Twitter. Like, okay, I don't, I don't want to participate in this platform. Yeah, people on the farther right saying, well, wait a second. You know, he didn't immediately make Donald Trump king of Twitter. So we're, gonna, we're mad too. We're going to leave it. Mm-hmm. That actually would probably be one of the best things that happened for Twitter from a point of view of it being a less balkanized place, but being a less destructive place. But, but I think the central tension of Twitter, and this is why you, you correctly pointed out, when I'm thinking out loud about Twitter just now, I'm undercutting the first thing I said. Twitter is not real life. Twitter has incredible impact on real life. Like both of these things, both of these things are true. This, I think, is the fundamental instability of Twitter is that on the one hand, it is a a really dangerous, unnatural experiment to create 
a homogenized global communication platform. And this kind of gets back to Linaire. But this idea that we're going to have just one place where everyone comes to talk and it's incredibly uniform. It's this many characters in exactly this format. Every tweet looks the same. There's a little avatar in this font on a very slick Web 2.0 plus interface. We're not meant for that as a species. There's too much going on out here. There's too many different affinity groups and communities and interests. And when you try to put everyone into the same space, it's like where you put all the monkeys into the same cage from all the different parts of the forest. It's trouble. On the other hand, it's also incredibly powerful. So, you know, even as from the point of view of Donald Trump was really destabilizing and a terrifying president, him being catapulted to the presidency in part because of Twitter also shows the, the explosive viral power of having a uniform, universal communication mm-hmm. platform. And so it's like you have this great power. It's Oppenheimer and the nuclear, nuclear bomb, right? You have this great power that you can amplify movements in a way that was incredibly difficult to do before. Incredibly difficult to do before. It took the dampeners and the natural friction governors off of movements, which could be deployed for good but it can also be deployed for all sorts of other things as well. And like, that's the tension of Twitter. If it's, it's, I think inevitably you create a platform like that. It was going to end up in 2019 Twitter, not in 2007 Twitter. Like it was going to end up in as, as a sort of like a, mm. a coliseum of gladiator battles and, and tribal attacks and battles. You can't put all the monkeys in the same cage, but it also has this great power. And I'm, you know, I'm of the belief of like that power is dangerous. And, you know, if, when you have, I mean, compare Twitter, I think a good comparison is compare Twitter to Reddit, where you have individual Reddit threads that are communities that, roughly speaking, when it's working well, develop their own TOS. Like, this is how this community operates. This is kind of the standards of this community. And there's a huge variety, and there's a lot of different things. And it's not the people over here in the Trump Reddit or over here in the the Hillary Reddit. It, like it's all kind of it's it's more niche, it's more weird, it's more distributed. You see this with Mastodon, you see this with people trying to start up Discord servers. That's the more healthy stable state for the internet. But you do give up that potential power of I can completely change the world in a year. I think that's a dangerous power. And that's what's captured in Twitter. And so I think both mm-hmm. those things are, are true about it at the same time. So the crucial difference is that on Reddit Everyone, all these communities are more siloed and things don't tend to go viral in the same way as on Twitter. Is that the relevant difference? And it's a small enough group typically that you can self-govern. So you can say, Mm -hmm. okay, over here on this knitting Reddit thread, there's a certain way we talk and express ourselves and things we do or don't talk about that's different than on the NASCAR thread. So it's a small enough collection that we're, we're back within the the window, the, the Dunbar number of, of collaborative communication that it's, it, you can keep the lid on. Well, do you think it's possible to build a social network that is truly good for us at scale? To scale, by definition, entail either um, kind of performative, bad faith, horror shows of dishonesty and combat, or the ever-present problem of you know, the, the cesspoolification of the place. I mean, the, the, the kind of the 4chan principle that as long as you just let people post stuff, they, it, it gets big enough so as to be ultimately impossible to, mo- to moderate successfully. And so there's just always awfulness there lurking and you can just never 
get rid of it in, you know in the absence of you know perfect ai whenever that arrives yeah i think social media at scale is inherent inherently dangerous and something we we shouldn't encourage i mean i i think the best thing that could happen for the internet would be the investor class losing the idea that there's a, a unicorn style return in large scale social networks which is happening more or less this is you know there's interest that the the returns there are, are diminishing and there's more interest going in other areas of the internet but i say that with a little bit of trepidation because again there is this power lurking in the universal network because it means the the good messages can be amplified but it is so difficult to control that that if the if increase of friction in spreading a message organizing in change the increase of friction in that to be closer to what things were like I don't want to say pre-internet, but I think early internet, where the early internet, what it gave you was the ability to express yourself without constraint. Anyone could publish on a website. Anyone could publish on a blog and universal protocols meant anyone could read that. That was a huge, that was the huge transition. Social networks just add curation and interface to that. So, so you're not losing the ability for individuals to express themselves, but you are losing that easy curation. It's much, much harder to get people to come and see and read or listen to the thing you're doing. I think that friction is probably the, the, price to pay for a functioning functioning populace. I I don't see I have no optimism for there being a stable net positive for the world all to all large scale social network. Yeah, I guess the, the the one thing you do lose which um you know the one tenth of 1% of us wouldn't want to lose is this winner take all digital economy, right? Cuz that, yep. that's what is ha- the consolidation of you know the curation effect has accrued to the advantage of, you know, a handful of people. And I mean, just to take, I mean, perhaps this is a bigger problem than social media, but I guess it it has something to do with social media. But to take the the podcast example we started with a long time ago, you know, there there are some millions of podcasts, apparently. I don't know how many actually succeed as businesses. I don't know how many become the basis for somebody to have a full time job as a podcaster. I would suspect it can't be more than a thousand or a couple thousand, you know, there's some kind of long tail effect there, one imagines, but still millions must just be effectively merely personal, private projects uh, where, you know, your aunts and uncles are, are listening to you on the mic. Do you think social media is the the largest driver of the winner-take-all dynamics here, or is that, just, is that just something else happening with respect to digital media itself? Well, I think podcasting is an interesting example. And, and I actually find it to be an, an optimistic example because it's a, it's a case study of open access digital expression. So as you said, millions of people have podcasters. There's very few barriers to actually starting a podcast. It's also not universalized. There's not a platform that everyone goes to to get their podcast and it's through algorithmic rankings and movings that the curation happens. The curation for podcast is largely human emergent and distributed. You know, it's unclear exactly how making sense got to its particular level beyond lots of word of mouth and mentions over here and you were there. And it's a much more human complicated type of curation that's going on. And it's created a winner take all economy for sure. I, I interviewed an expert about this and I asked him that exact question and he didn't have an answer either, but he also suspected it's quite small. I, I was asking, I asked this expert if podcasting, was there a, a fair sized middle class? in a way mm-hmm. that you know other other entertainment industries don't have like a, a fair number of people that makes 
we talked about like an accountant's salary. He said, no. He's like, no, no, it's very winner take all. It's either your law partner money or nothing type. It's, it's so mm-hmm. it's, it is much more, much more winner take all. But I use podcasting as so, so I say, A, to answer your question, I think winner take all dynamics are basically fundamental. I mean, this is the, if you go back to the, the original superstar effect paper by Jeffrey Rosen, the economist Jeffrey Rosen, the, the, and this is written in the 80s, but the, the elements you need for winner take all economic dynamics is typically an, an open marketplace where you have equal access to all of the different products and it's a low, low cost substitution. That's the, that's the economic setup for winner take all because the issue with that marketplace is why would I ever listen to the, the second best podcast on this topic if for the exact same effort I can get the best? Mm. That's the dynamics in which you have winner take all. So his example was with you know records. Once you had a record economy for music, you got winner take all dynamics because I'm not going to buy the monkeys if I can get the Beatles. Like they're better. Whereas when music was regionalized, mm-hmm. you could have the best band in every town doing pretty well for themselves. But once I can have access to the best band from Hamburg, Germany, right. then why am I going to listen to the best band? And so I think most of, just in general, when it comes to digital media production, it's in that context of everyone has equal access to all the products. You are going to get winner take all. But my second point there is I think podcasting is an optimistic example. I mean, it's showing that interesting curation can happen. Voices can be found. Industries can be created without having to do any sort of consolidation. I mean, I host my podcast on some podcast server somewhere and there's it, it's mine mm. you know it's not i'm not digital sharecropping for meta yeah. you know for my content so for me podcasting is a positive case study it's showing that the internet without consolidation can still create a lot of really interesting discovery and dynamics and innovation yeah yeah i would agree what what are your thoughts about what social media i guess again this is not merely social media. I think social media is the, the epicenter of this, but it, like, it really is the internet itself. What are your thoughts about how digital media has ushered in a, an, an age of what I'm increasingly calling the new contrarianism, where you, you know, everyone is doing their own research and there's this pervasive distrust of institutions and experts. And um, some of this is understandable, and we, you know our, our institutions and experts have have a fair amount of egg on their face at this point, given the, you know recent years, but uh, you know, especially the, the COVID pandemic, I think being the biggest issue. But it's really it's now touching everything, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to have a an uncontroversially fact based discussion about anything, even the most important things, uh, even things where are solving some kind of coordination problem uh, and figuring out how to cooperate it has to happen on a deadline. We could take climate change. We could take, you know, what wars we should fight or not fight or support or not support. There are many examples. What are your thoughts about this seemingly new feature of human life? Again, I, I'm sure someone who's more aware of the history th- than I am could say, well, actually, no, this, if you go back to 1935, there was the same kind of distrusts of, of institutions and experts. But I do feel like we've noticed something palpably change for all of us, more or less all at once in the last you know, five years or so. So is your hypothesis that it's technological developments are potentially driving this more than cultural? Or you, you're, you're asking 
No, I, yeah, I, where, I, do you, yeah. where do you fall on that, I guess? Yeah, I, between I, I cultural and technological. I think it's the, the, the technology is enabling a cultural change that would be you know, more or less impossible or, or very unlikely in the absence of this technology. I'm going to give you one, one example is, is where I first noticed this. I mean, when you look at the spread of conspiracy theories and the, the, the kinds of people who can be captured by them and the mechanics of that capturing, all of this gets enabled by the internet. And if you push it out into the real world, there's, there's much more friction, right? So I, I had a member of my family get just super involved in the 9-11 truth conspiracy theory back in the day. And, you know, he was unaware, you know, he was, he had to have been unaware that what he was consuming, you know, the kinds of, you know, videos that he was finding compelling. I mean, these were being made by, you know, 18-year-olds in their mother's basement, or they were being made by people who, if he physically showed up at a conspiracy conference, these are people who, you know, one glance at them would have testified to their obvious psychological dysfunction uh, and lack of proper integration in the world. Uh, and yet he's not getting any of those cues when he's just reading websites or reading comment threads on some conspiracy forum. So the do-your-own-research principle on the Internet leaves many people you know, reinventing the wheel and giving it corners on, you know, outside the, the, the gates of institutions where the people who have truly specialized on the relevant topics have done a lot of work that, uh, you know, can't best be communicated in, in the, on the, the time schedule of somebody who is reacting to the latest thing that just happened on Twitter and, um, you know, trying to trying to figure out whether you know this this video clip from some world event is in fact real or you know now, now increasingly we have to deal with things like deep fakes, right? So things are get increasingly weird here, uh, and it, it seems like it's driving cultural change and just personal you know information diet change that would be very difficult, if not impossible, without these digital tools that are giving us you know a friction free information environment at scale. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And the way I, I think about it is there's, a, there's an intersection of culture and tech here. And so I think about what's happening culturally, let's say, for example, the way the media operates, the way cultural figures are talking, that can impact, let's say, the pool of susceptible people. So in, in different types of cultural political contexts, you have larger groups of people who are sort of in a seeking mode to where they can be captured more easily than other times, though they're always going to be that pool. Then technology impacts how effectively and thoroughly you can capture those who are susceptible. So these two mm -hmm. things work together. If we look at just that technological question, one of the things I've argued is that an unexpected consequence of the shift to consolidated social media platforms is that we increase the greatly increase the efficacy of this conspiratorial capture because we homogenized the mm. internet experience. And, and, and so let's think about 2006 compared to 2016. So in 2006, uh, the internet is going to be largely, it's early web 2.0, it's largely blog-based, right? And so a lot of, everyone, uh, anyone can write a blog. There's a lot of blogs, there's a lot of websites. But what you had was this complex, human-driven, distributed curation. So how would you find your way to a blog that was, you know, talking about something that you were going to give credibility to it. Well, you were going to start someplace that you already trusted, 
a lot of other real humans would have to have linked to this place. Maybe you saw them referenced a few times by other people that you, you've read for a long time. You make your way to that site. Then there's a whole assessment that happens on, well, what does this website look like? You know, I mean, is this a professional organization's website or does this look like what you would expect from a website from someone who thought the earth was flat, right? So there's also this aesthetic cues to distributed curation. And this was all pretty, this was all pretty effective. When you go to something like Twitter, you get rid of all those cues. You say every single person's content is going to look exactly the same. Everyone has an avatar, this font, this many, this many characters, and Barack Obama's text is going to look exactly the same as Richard Spencer's. The mm-hmm. interface is now homogenized. The curation then got homogenized. We'll curate for you. Like you, 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 know, you can click follow and we'll select what to show you. But this more, I know this person and he's mentioned this person enough times that I'm now going to go look at what that person is writing. That whole aspect of the curation went away. So when you're in 2006, if you, you're, first of all, you were, you were unlikely to wander onto Der Stormer, right? The, right? the Nazi website. And if you did somehow wander on that, it's black with animated gifts of eagles and you're looking at this thing and like, oh my God, like clearly this is different than CNN, you know, and you had all these cues. 2016, you know, a Nazi's tweet looks the exact same as a health experts tweet. You know, everything looks the same. So, so I think when we look at the, uh, the uh, efficiency of conversion, the efficiency of capture, which is this is what technology controls, moving to consolidated social media made that much worse. And it's why I said, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I did an interview with GQ and they were talking about digital minimalism in the pandemic. And I said, look, I think the, one of the number one public health things you could do right now, honestly, uh, forget for now, like mask and shots, it would be shutting mm-hmm. down Twitter. And this was March of 2020 when I said that, because, I, because exactly what I was thinking was this world of homogenized interface where everyone looks the same as everyone else. You can just sort out what seems more right to you or how much you, you like or dislike someone else was going to create a, a tribalized information atmosphere uh, in the middle of a global health emergency, which is exactly what happened. So that's my model. You have cultural political forces affect what percentage of the population is susceptible for capture. Technological forces affect the efficiency of that capture. Yeah, at the time I told Jack that he should delete Twitter and he would win the Nobel Peace Prize and he would deserve it. I mean, it's amazing to see, you know, virtually no one is immune to this given these variables. I mean, just given the way information and links are presented. I mean, you know, Elon is, isn't immune to it and he owns the place now. I mean, you can see him interacting with people and thereby amplifying them who are, you know, I know to be, you know, QAnon-addled morons, right? And he's responding, yeah, you're right, you know, in front of 100 million followers. And, you know, famously, he retweeted this conspiracy article about the uh, near murder of Paul Pelosi and, you know, then thought better of it and deleted it. But it's just amazing. And I say this about Elon. Elon has been a friend for many years, and, and I very much want him to succeed. But you know, watching one of the most productive people who has ever lived waste his time and his reputational capital in this way has been pretty extraordinary. And he's become a kind of funhouse mirror himself in which many of us, you know, myself included, have been, you know, forced to reconsider our engagement with Twitter because I mean, it's so clearly bad for him. And he obviously doesn't believe that, but 
you know, his engagement, I mean, his, his even buying the platform in the first place is so clearly an expression of his addiction to using Twitter. You know, he, he, he can layer on top of that some high-minded notion of preserving free speech for the betterment of all of humanity, but that's not what's actually driving his behavior. And it's so obvious, and it's so destabilizing of, of his life, and it's such a, an opportunity cost. You know, and he's an extreme example, but it's sobering because, you know, I, I, along with probably millions of other people, need to consider just why do any of this, right? And I've driven down my use of the platform a lot, and, you know, I, I have what has certainly felt like a, a more or less healthy relationship to it for quite some time, but I'm starting to realize that there are insidious ways in which the mere existence of the platform you know, with my presence on it is distorting of, you know, several things that I, I, I didn't think necessarily it was touching, you know, and, and so it's, it's interesting to consider whether just in principle, it's impossible to make such a thing and have it be a net good for the world. Because I, I mean, it often feels like it's a net good personally. I, I, I follow a lot of interesting people. I see all kinds of, you know, journalism and you know, other sources of information recommended to me that I wouldn't otherwise know about, or at least I imagine I wouldn't otherwise know about these things. And it's fun and, you know, pleasure-inducing a lot of the time, but the negative externalities are, are just omnipresent at this point, socially speaking. And you know, it, to see people's lives go off the rails by, with their engagement in the platform, it's just, um, it's an amazing spectacle. And, and you know, I, I it's definitely not outside the, the realm of possibility that I'm going to wake up tomorrow or the next day or, the, or a month after that and, and realize, okay, this is basically 99% of what I've done on Twitter, in retrospect, looks like a colossal waste of time. And it gave me an inaccurate and, by several clicks, too negative view of humanity by just merely paying any attention to it. And yep. it's... Um, it's just worth stepping away. Well, from I'm going to make that pitch. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah no, I know. I, who, I know who I'm talking to. I'm. I'm. I'm uh, you are my priest for this particular problem. I. Yeah. I will. I will hear your confession yeah. and the, and the uh, the absolution I'll offer is, I think you should quit. I mean, and I'm just going to echo back what you said. The positives you mentioned, you could get those in so many ways. You could be exposed to interesting people, interesting journalism interesting art. You could do all of that without having to, without having to be on Twitter. We all did that until yeah. a minute no, ago. I, I used to do all of that. I mean, I, so I, yeah. I mean, all, all the subscriptions that you just, and the physical subscriptions I used to have, you know, I was, uh, you know, in your own magazine, you know, copies of the New Yorker would be piled high in my house, uh, waiting to be read. It was impossible to keep up with them. But, um, yeah, along with the New York review of books and Sure. Other magazines that uh, I have not seen a physical copy of in, in many years. It was a different life, no doubt. Yeah. Well, and let me also say it would be influential because of who you are. I mean, if you said, I'm not using Twitter, I mean, I, I think it just gets in the way of not just a good life, but quality thinking and the other things I find are important and I'm gone. You know, I think that'd be really influential. I think there's a lot of people for whom that would be true, that them mm. just walking away without the caveats, without just like enough, you know, I'm not, 
I'm not a stockholder in this company. Like, why am I, why am I going through so much so that, you know, now Elon or before, you know, these stockholders or before that Jack and Evan, that, that their stock can do well. Like it's, you're causing me grief. You know, it's like the war correspondent. Like mm-hmm. it's important that I did this for a while. I'm Sebastian Younger, but like, I can't keep going into the war zones. There's like a lot of danger to it too. And I'm, I'm moving on. I mean, I'm a big proponent of that. And I don't think enough people will just make that at a certain level, just make that straight pit. So I'll just make the straight pits. It's like, I think if you quit, you would be happier. It would not have any appreciable negative impact on your business. I think it would be highly influential for a lot, especially a lot of public intellectuals, a lot of the people who are going to be thinking the thoughts that are going to change the world, if not for them being on, you know, Twitter all day. And I'll say as someone who doesn't use Twitter, I am not nearly as dire on humanity as almost everyone else I know. I really like people. I really like people. I like, I meet a lot of people. I really like people. I mean, I'm an introvert, so I don't need to be around people all the time, but I just love people in general. I find people interesting. I don't particularly care if they are a different place on a political spectrum. It's just like old fashioned. This person is in front of me. I'm considered by people I know to be this weird optimist. And, but it's, I don't hate as much. And I think that's Twitter. I just, there's not as much hate in my life. There's not much anger in my life. I'm sure people are yelling about me all the time. I don't know it. Mm. it. So anyways, here's my pitch. I think you're right. I think you should quit. All right. Well, stay tuned. Let's see what happens here. So now I'm I'm looking at the clock here. I, uh, we've talked a good long while, but we have not hit your um, any of your greatest hits with respect to the uh, the advice you give so abundantly in your books and and um, I imagine on your podcast. Can we let's, let's just drive through this? Maybe in thirty minutes we can we can get a good dose of of what you recommend beyond quitting Twitter. Let's start with just how you think about, and I get this brings us back to the, the original division you made between work and private life. How do you think about productivity at this point? And you know, what, what's happened to productivity among knowledge workers? And maybe this is the place to bring in email and, and Slack as tools that have helped or harmed us. What's your 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 view and your advice uh, in this situation. Well, you know, going back to something you said early in this conversation where you said your guess would have been knowledge workers are spectacularly more productive. You know, the data shows the exact opposite story. That, that essentially what happened with the the IT revolution in business is that when we had back office IT introduced. So now we have a database to control our inventory. That created a lot of productivity. So the 80s into the early 90s, this was really useful. Computerized inventory systems, travel reservations that could be done over networks. This was very useful. Fax machines being replaced by the electronic delivery of design files. I mean, a lot of people don't know the key role that the American aerospace industry played in lobbying for standard universalization so that they could uh, use other people's networks to send digital files between their, their East and West Coast offices. That all really helped. Computers show up in the front office. So now it's at everyone's desk, at everyone's cubicles. This starts happening in the 90s, really, at, in a, at a large rate. And then email comes right, right around the mid-90s at a big way. Productivity didn't move in the same way. We, we didn't get this unexpected burst. And as we made the machines more powerful and the connectivity more ubiquitous, things remained flat. It was like a, a, a buffer on, they would call like non-industrial knowledge sector jobs. And, hmm. and my argument about What's happening here is it's simpler than the stories people often tell. It's all cognitive and it all comes down to context switching. 
that if, if the human brain has to switch back and forth between multiple things all day, it can't operate as well. It becomes less effective. And what happened when we introduced email into the front office is that it changed the way we collaborated, again, emergently, bottom up, not top down, but it changed the way we collaborated towards what I call the hyperactive hive mind, which is work it out on the fly with back and forth messaging. That mode of collaboration required unavoidably lots of context shifts. If things are being worked out with back and forth messaging, I have to service this stream. Because if I'm not servicing this stream, discussions or decisions can get stuck, and that's a problem. So I have to keep checking an inbox. I have to keep checking Instant Messenger, not because I'm lazy or because I have bad habits or I, you know, I, I didn't read in four-hour work week and I'm supposed to batch my email, but because it's absolutely necessary, it's demanded by this workflow. And I think that's the whole game, is that as long as we have this lowest common denominator, really easy, flexible collaboration style of just rock and roll with messages, it's impossible to get anywhere near the full capacity out of minds. So I, I think what happened with the front office tech revolution is some technologies did help productivity, but the cognitive tax of all this communication and context switching balanced it out. And that's why mm. we ended up stagnant. So what do you recommend for people who increasingly do remote work? I mean, so like my team at this point is, uh, you know, for actually it's always been 100% distributed, right? So it's just, you know, the people are in, different cities. We communicate by email, but mostly by Slack. You know, there are, there are Zoom calls, there are conference calls, but there's a, lo- a lot happening on Slack. Slack is, you know, as you know, uh, meant to solve some of the problems uh, of email, but uh, on your account is, as I know from at least one of your New Yorker articles, is solving the wrong problem. What should we be doing here if we fully acknowledge the cognitive costs of context shifting? We have to replace the hyperactive hive mind. Like we, we have to put in place an alternative form of collaboration that does not require the frequent response to unscheduled messages. So we have to change the way we collaborate. It's not, it's not a technological problem. It's not what better tool can we use as a tool better than email? What if we use this hyper email over here? It's not a technological problem. It's a process problem. There has to be an alternative to let's just rock and roll with messages. But the reason why that's hard is because it actually goes against the sort of phenotypical expression of productivity that's embedded in knowledge works DNA. So this is is an argument I unfolded in my most recent book, which if you go back and look at the history of knowledge work, one of the bigger influences on that development was Peter Drucker, the, the very first management theorist, the person who invented the idea of knowledge work management. He coined mm. the term knowledge work in the mid-1950s and really helped, especially in the American context, managers and business owners understand what this new thing was. And the message he was preaching was autonomy. Knowledge work is not a car factory. You can't break down people's work into seven steps. They do like an assembly line. You have to just leave it to people to figure out how to come up with the new ad campaign or the the new algorithm for their IBM computer. Like you got to leave the individuals to figure out their work on their own. This is not an assembly line. That message was so pervasive that we expanded it beyond just the how I write the ad or how I come up with the algorithm. And we expanded it to organization as well. And we said productivity is personal. In knowledge work, you know, that's up to you. I don't know. Use a to-do list, like read a Cal Newport book. Like I don't, that's not my job as a manager to figure out how you manage your stuff. Like it would be manage my objectives, get your work done. And in that context, we're not used to this idea of having 
a really clearly specified system for when we talk about this work, how we keep track of who's working on what, how we assign tasks, you know, how we collaborate about this project versus this type of work. We're not used to building those systems because we've been in this uh, for 70 years now, this culture of, of autonomy. And I think in that culture, we are, uh, it's very difficult to get out of the hyperactive hive mind. It's a, it's a, a, a Nash equilibrium that is really suboptimal. Mm-hmm. We can't get out of it. No one person can unilaterally break out of this equilibrium. If this is what everyone else is doing, you can't step out of it and say, I only check email twice a day because everyone else is communicating this way and you're going to cause problems. And the only solution then is organizational. You have to come in and say, this is how we do this work and this work. This is how we, when we talk about this, this uses this process. Here's how we keep track of tasks. It, it has to be this, an organizational solution once we recognize the context shifting is a problem. And it's why personal productivity hacks can't solve this problem by themselves. It's not, you don't have a problem with your inbox. Your organization's dependency on your inbox for all decisions and conversation to happen. That's the actual problem. Hmm. Okay, I'm still having a hard time imagining how to implement this kind of change structurally. So, so you take my case. I've got something like 20 people on my team. And again, everyone is remote, right? So all we have are our digital tools by which to communicate. I'm imagining a scenario where we, you know, we, we still use Slack and email, but we, we turn off our notifications and we just decide we're going to check or we're all going to check at certain times of of the day rather than be interrupted whenever these messages just happen to come in, why wouldn't that solve the problem? Well, that would go a long way. So, I mean, I I would take two approaches to the problem. One is process-specific frameworks. So you say, okay, what are the different things we do as an organization? There's a bunch of different things. And you treat each of those differently. So maybe podcast production right now, and I'm just, you know, hypothesizing here, but maybe right now there's a lot of sort of informality with Slack with the various sound engineers and producers and, oh, you got this file, what's going on over here? I give an example in my most recent book of someone who had this, uh, the pipe, this pipeline they built and it's a pain, right? It involved, they had the shared spreadsheet where the information went in. There was a flag that would be swapped when it was someone else's turn to take the files. And they had a somewhat rigorous system of shared directories with a naming convention that files moved through. And it seemed like a pain, but what it meant was no unscheduled messages. Like there was no unscheduled messages they had to receive. So there's process specific frameworks to get away from unscheduled messages. And then like you're talking about here, there's some process agnostic things you can do to move away from it. And you are hinting at this. I I would use different terminology, Mm. but I would say office hours, for example. All right. Every day at this time, I'm available. Slack is on. My phone is on. I have a Zoom room open that anyone can come into. If you have anything that requires back and forth, beyond just here's one question that you can answer and it's not time sensitive, Mm. come to my next office hours, we'll interact and figure it out. And again, in like the moment, it seems like a pain. Like I could just send a message now and it would be off my plate and and then I don't have to worry about it. If I have to hold on to this till three, that's kind of a problem. But what you've avoided by doing this is maybe seven back and forth messages, each of which requires five inbox checks while you wait for it to come in. And so what you've just avoided there by waiting till three is 35 inbox checks and the corresponding context switching. So I think you have to go process by process and say, how do we actually want to do this? And then put in place these type of process agnostic tools. So office hours is a big one. Uh, The other big one is a lot of people have adapted agile style methodologies from software development into other knowledge work fields, common task boards. Everyone can see the same information, clear processes for assigning work to individuals, poll models, I do one thing at a time. And when I'm done, then I pull in a new thing. So I, I, 
don't have the, there's a administrative overhead to everything that's currently on your plate, emails and meetings to generate. So, so having a system in which I only have one thing on my plate at a time, all of these type of solutions can chip away at, at the bigger problem. Hmm. Well, so the thing you're trying to protect here and carve out space for is what you call deep work, uh, which I believe is, your, is the title of your book. I believe that is your phrase. What, what do you mean by deep work? I mean, that's what started me in this particular whole thread of <laughs> thinking is, is deep work is focusing on a cognitively demanding task without distraction. But if we're going to use the terminology we just used there, it's you're working on something hard without context shifts. Right. And so I wrote this book in 2016 that was saying, hey, everyone, don't forget how fundamental this activity is to how all these different organizations actually make money. Like in the end, it is this undistracted, concentrated thought that produces the, the thought stuff that is the value in knowledge work. And so we should protect it. And I was reacting to the fact that all these new trends in digital office tools were making it impossible to do that. I said, this is crazy. You realize, you know, in order to make your boat go faster, you're drilling holes in the hole and like eventually the boat's going to sink, you know? And so that was the point of that book. Mm. And then I got the feedback after that of like, you don't realize how impossible it is to push back against this. Deep work is impossible. And that's what started this whole thread of trying to understand well, how did we get here? Why is deep work so hard? So all of this thinking of the history of email, the hyperactive hive mind, the context switching, where that came from, its emergent nature, Peter Drucker autonomy, all of that came out of trying to understand why if deep work is so valuable, it's not just fun to ubiquitous in, in, a, lot of these, in a lot of these knowledge work organizations. What, what about one's personal approach to work with respect to structure and lack of structure? I, I know you're very much a structure guy. I think I basically break all of your rules on this front. But um, one feature here is also the, the boundary or lack thereof between work and the rest of one's life. I mean, I'm someone who, I mean, obviously there, there's a need for a work-life boundary in that there are other things outside of work that I, that I want to do, like you know, spend time with my family. But the truth is, for someone like me, I'm doing, my work is really what I want to do, right? I'm just incredibly lucky. And this is, this is a, perhaps not the, you know, this, this could be a very uncommon use case. I don't actually know. But my work, you know, certainly most of it is more or less, if it isn't exactly what I would do anyway, uh, if I didn't have to work, it's something that's in service of what I would do anyway if I didn't have to work. And so it's, it's just, um, you know, that, that's a wonderful position to be in, but it becomes a problem in that, you know, it, it is also true to say of me that I am effectively a workaholic because I'm spending, you know, I, I very naturally do what I really want to do, you know, and you know, almost by definition, and, and much of what I want to do has become my, my career. So how do you think about the, you know, policing the boundary between work and life and, and structuring one's work? I mean, I'm a big proponent of control. So controlling, controlling your time, how it's allocated and doing so intentionally. So according to some sort of understanding of what's valuable to me, how that then expresses itself depends on the individual and what's going on in their life and their skill set and, and what type of work they do and what's happening with their family or whatever else is going on. Like that's very individualized. The, the issue that I see most often when I deal with this sort of more nitty gritty in personal productivity is haphazardness and lack of control, a sort of reactive approach of what do I want to do next? What's due? Hmm. What am I late on? What's catching my attention? 
so lack of control. And so the, the way I, I preach that is through what I call multi-scale. We get in the sort of productivity prawn weeds here a little bit mm. is multi-scale planning where you have a, a plan at the scale of the season or the quarter of, okay, this is what this fall I'm working on. It's you know, a book manuscript and these two articles, and we want to update the podcast to, to like add this new feature. You know, this is what's going on. Then that informs a plan each week. So then you make a plan for your week and you look at your calendar and you look at this semester or quarterly or seasonal plan that reminds you of like what you want to work on. And that's where you start moving the chess pieces around. And that's where you're able to make these decisions. Like, you know, Tuesday would be great for me to spend all day really getting after it on this book chapter, but I've got this zoom check-in at 10 and, uh, you know, whatever a dentist appointment at two. If I just move those two things, now suddenly Tuesday could be that day. So you can start moving the chess pieces around to, to get more out of your week. And then when you get to the daily scale, uh, I'm a big proponent of time block planning, where I look at my hours of the day and make a plan for it. I assign work to time as opposed to just having a list I try to get through. And that, again, allows you to be much more intentional about, I have a busy afternoon, so this morning I'm going to work on this. Uh, I'm going to consolidate a lot of annoying errands and tasks into this one hour between lunch and this call because my energy is going to be distracted. But then I have two hours tonight I could work on. You're in control. Hmm. Here's my time. What do I want to do with it? And for some people that might be like for you that what that might be more about is I love what I do. I can two or three X the, the quantity of what I produce or the, the top end quality, what I produce. If I'm really careful about like my time and it's just what I can, I can produce in a month, what would have taken me two months before for other people. It's about, you know, their, their job's okay. It stresses them, but it's all remote and it's all sort of haphazard and they can just get their arms around that and squeeze it in the smaller chunks of their day and be running a side hustle or writing novels or, you know, spending a huge amount of time with their kids, even during mm-hmm. the, whatever, right? I mean, there's different things you can do with it, but I've always been a big proponent of yeah, value-driven intentionality into control of your time on multiple scales. So I'm, because I'm an engineer, I'm a computer scientist. Mm-hmm. So I think of this stuff probably more technically than is palatable for, for a lot of people, but that's mm-hmm. how I come down on it. How much do you feel within that structure that time and uh, its scarcity is just an, an ever-present uh, source of, of stress, right? I mean, how much do you feel that you're rushing or that, I mean, you're, that you're, you're so cognizant of this abstraction of time that it's, uh, you know, you're effectively kind of moving through an obstacle course rather than walking for pleasure in the same direction? It's draining and it's stressful. Like, I, I think that's absolutely right. When you, when you have a time block day, it's very demanding. You know, you're not going to be participating on the text thread with your friends because you're locked in on hmm. each thing you're doing. But where I come down on that is, okay, that is still the best way to operate when you're trying to actually produce things that matter. But you have to acknowledge that is hard and be very careful about how much you're doing it. This is where, you know, I'm very protective of my weekends. This is where I'm ending this day at noon instead of five, right? And, and so having this time block versus non-time block becomes the, the important binary. I find that's way more effective. Control your time. And because of that, you can be incredibly liberal with breaks or careful with how many hours you work. But when you work, have it be real controlled. I, I find that that ends up being the more effective way of just turning the raw input into valuable output than instead. Losing that stress by just going through the day a little bit more haphazardly and reactively, 
I think that generates its own stresses. Yeah. It generates its own stresses. I think it reduces the quality of what you produce. And I think it reduces the quality of relaxation because when you're time blocking, it's, I am so confident that I'm not supposed to be working right now that you can really not be working right now. Right. Whereas when things right. are more loose and haphazard, it's like there's emails I could be checking. You know, I could be working on a chapter. So you, you actually paradoxically can gain more relaxation. But it is, I mean, I was just doing a seminar at, at Georgetown yesterday with new faculty. We're talking about this type of stuff. And I was like really clear about it. I mean, like, look, it's hard. Like if you want to produce, you know, more papers than anyone else, you want to get tenure early, you want to write eight books or whatever. This is kind of what you have to do. When you work, you have to be all locked in. And it and it's it's hard. It's like professional athletes. When they train, they have to train really, really hard because those epsilons matter. And, and so I don't want to sugarcoat that. I mean, I think you're right to, to point it out. Doing cognitive work with that sort of let's squeeze every ounce out of it while we're working is not, it's not without cost. But you have this phrase, I believe this is your phrase, do less, do better, know why. What is uh, the significance of, of that? So that brings us to a compliment I think this is a point that compliments what I was just talking about. So if multi-scale planning is a, a strategy for controlling your time with respect to your intention, the question is, how do you come up with your intentions? Like, how do you figure out how much should I be doing? What should I be aiming my time at? How much should I be working? That then requires a bigger philosophy, a philosophy of, of work and its role in your life. And the phrase you just mentioned there comes from this, this concept I'm developing and I'm in the middle of writing a book about right now called slow productivity, which is a, it's a philosophy of work. You know, what is the right approach to work? This is orthogonal to the particular productivity tools you use to implement your work, which is what we were just talking about. And so slow productivity, first of all, it's amorphous right now because I'm in the middle of it, right? So I don't have it, I don't have it pinned down, but it's sort of like deep work. You know it when you see it. But, but to me, it's part of even just personally, the, the response to me figuring out that I don't have as much time to work as I used to. There's other things going on in my life that are very important to me, like namely, you know, with my family and trying to come develop a coherent philosophy of this notion that working consistently on hard, valuable things, if you do that at a natural pace. So like the, the, I've refined those principles now to do fewer things, working at a natural pace, obsessing over quality. If you do that, when you zoom out to the five-year scale or the 10-year scale, you can be incredibly productive. Look at all these things you produced, these books, these articles, you had a real impact. But when you zoom in to someone with a slow productivity mindset and look at Tuesday, mm. you might say, you know, they didn't do anything today. It's not frantic at the, it's, it, when you zoom in, it's not frantic. It's not a fractal structure that preserves itself at every scale. At the big scale, it's very productive. At the small scale, it's, it's, there's breathing room you're not pushing yourself. It's not when you work, you work hard, but it's not 10 hour days. It's not 15 hour days. And the, the example I'm working on the introduction of this book now, but an example I keep coming back to is John McPhee. And I, I tell the story of him writing his, his first really complicated two-part article for the New Yorker on the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. And he talks about how after eight months of research, he spent two weeks laying on a picnic table, looking at the branches of an ash tree in his backyard, just thinking about how am I going to get into this article? Like, what's the, I can't figure out the structure. I don't know how to, how to pull all this together. And then spent a whole nother year mm. writing the article. And so then I went back to the New Yorker archive during that whole year. He had only one other article. He wrote actual article, a, a profile of, of Paul Hoving from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And then he had just a bunch of really short talk of the town pieces. So like, that's what he did for a year. 
So you zoom in on that two-week period in the summer of 1967, and you say, John McPhee is the least productive person I've seen. He's lying on a picnic table. You zoom out to his whole career since then. It's a Pulitzer, a National Book Award, 30 books, whatever it is now, 50 years at The New Yorker, one of the most influential writers in the history of of journalistic nonfiction. He's incredibly productive. Mm. And so this is what I'm trying to get at with slow productivity. And this is basically self-help for myself. I'm trying to get at a approach to like, uh, we're talking about elite cognitive work here, right? I mean, this is very narrow, very narrow we're talking about, but an approach to elite cognitive work where on the big scale, you're very productive and influential. But on Tuesday, you know, you might've spent all day staring at a tree branch and yeah. trying to make a coherent philosophy about that. What do you, what's your reaction to this common tidbit of advice that uh, young people should follow their passion or follow their bliss? I think, I think, I think it was, was it Joseph Campbell in his interviews with um, Bill Moyers who gave us follow your bliss or was that? That's right. What's your advice to uh, somebody who's hoping to productively and pleasurably use their talents out in the world, and they might be um, just graduating college. I somehow think you uh, demur from, from Joseph Campbell here, but uh, what, what's your reaction to this, <laughs> this uh, piece of wisdom or pseudo-wisdom? Uh, yeah, I, I, don't only, I not only demur with uh, <laughs> Joseph Campbell there, but you know, I wrote a whole book about why follow your passion is bad advice. And when that, but this is what I think is important about that. When that book came out in 2012, the book I wrote on this topic, it was at the end of the period where that was a contrarian argument. Because if we zoom out on this idea that you should follow your passion, the theory is, first of all, this is a millennial notion. So the uh, baby boomers instilled this idea, follow your passion into the millennials. So we're talking Mm. 1981 to 1995 birth date. So I'm 1982. So I'm I'm an old millennial. So the the baby boomers had this issue. Their kids were becoming of grammar school age in the 90s. They said, what advice do we give to our kids? And they had two models, neither of which they really liked. Their parents, the, the World War II organization man parents, had lived lives that they felt, the baby boomers felt, were lives of corporate conformity. This whole, we move to the suburbs and we'll use our allegiance to IBM as a substitute for civic engagement, right? So they had seen that. They had rejected that. The baby boomers rejected that with the counterculture movements in the 60s, which threw out the notion of work basically altogether and said it's just an impediment to self-actualization. That didn't work either. So by the 80s, they're all yuppies. So they're trying to figure out what do we tell our kids that we had in the 80s. We don't want to tell them just become an IBM man, but we also don't want to tell them to go to the commune. And so they came up with this compromise, which was follow your passion. So it Mm -hmm. was get a job you know, pay your mortgage, but the job should be your source of self-actualization. So you still care about self-actualization, but it's, here's our twist. It's going to be the job at IBM or whatever that gives it to you. And, and you can trace this from an, just a word use perspective. Like the phrase, follow your passion does not show up in common uses till the 1990s. And I try to figure out where it came from. And I do think Joseph Campbell talking to Bill Moore, Moyers in the 80s saying, follow your bliss. That was a seed. Uh, what Color Is Your Parachute coming out, Richard Bowles in the 1970s. Mm. That was a seed because that introduced the idea of, and this sounds crazy to modern years, but the idea of figuring out what job you want wasn't really a widespread part of the way career thinking went. I mean, that was a lot more prescribed. You know, I'm working in the factory in my town. My dad was a lawyer. I'm going to be a lawyer. You know, you're Bill Clinton. You're like, oh, I have to, I'm in Hope, Arkansas in the 60s and have this huge 
talent. I went to Boy State, so I'm going to be a politician. Like some stuff like that would happen. So this this concept comes out. The baby boomers give it to us, to the millennials, and that's all we were told. I mean, that's all we were told in the '90s uh, and into the early 2000s. Follow your passion. Follow your passion. And then that began to destabilize in the early 2000s. I think we got 9/11, the financial crisis after 9/11, then the 2008 financial crisis, and it really severed finally this notion that oh, your job, the content of the job is going to be your primary source of satisfaction. And so the millennials moved off of follow your passion towards a much more pragmatic work as a means to an end approach to their job. So this is where you get, you know, first Tim Ferriss with four hour work week, you get the minimalism movement blowing up on web 2.0 in the late 2000s that Mm. you get the fire movement in in the 2010s this sort of Instagram culture around living your best life. It's the, the Instagram stories are not about your job. It's about the crafts you're doing with your kids or your bow hunting or whatever it is. Right. And so the millennials switched away from my job is going to be the source of my satisfaction to the job is like an input into the system I'm building to generate a good life. And so like right in the middle of that, I wrote this book that said, follow your passion is bad advice. And it was for the obvious reasons. Most people don't have inborn passions. We don't have a lot of research that matching the content of your job to a pre-existing interest is a source of career satisfaction. It's more complicated than that. But really, though that book has done well, I was at the tail end of that even being a contrarian argument. Mm-hmm. And, and I think today, if you talk to a millennial, they're not worried about, is my job my passion? It's the millennials that are out there saying, okay, how can we make remote work permanent? How can we use the pandemic to our advantage to get more flexibility into how we do our job? Because if I could move to Idaho, I could, I could live by a river and I could do more mountain biking. And and so the millennials have evolved into this, this view of job satisfaction where the job is very instrumental. It, it's one input to a complicated system that has lots of different aspects to it that all tries to generate a fulfilling life. Right. Although I guess that is the less happy outcome given that it is, it is in fact possible for some people to find an expression of their talents that becomes a career. And therefore they are, you know, as I just described for myself, you know, it really is true to say that that I'm doing more or less exactly what I would want to do, even if I didn't have to do anything. And that, you know, again, I, I, I'm well aware that's a uh, not every job that needs to be done can fall under that rubric. But, you know, when you're talking about knowledge workers, when you're talking about the highly educated people who are, you know, have the good fortune to to, you know, study whatever they want in a, in a good university, and then they come out the other side hoping to be gainfully employed, you know, are, what are you actually recommending to somebody? You know, they, they have all of these things they're good at and, you know, interests that they would like to be able to express professionally. And yet, you know, as, as we have sketched here, however dimly, you know, the, the landscape is such that it's just, it's not necessarily obvious that all of that can be the basis of a successful career for everyone or even most or much of everyone. Right. So what, what, what do you actually recommend to somebody who is, is trying to you know, bootstrap their way into something that they, they find not just instrumentally workable and useful, but intrinsically satisfying? I mean, I think it's the right question because the current millennial obsession with just work as this completely instrumental means to an end is that 
we often take it too far. And, and then you get things like the FIRE movement, the, the financial independence, retire early movement, where mm. everything becomes obsessive about this particular abstract goal. And it really gets out of touch with yourself and, and, and your values. So, so bringing it back to what I suggested in that book is I would have looked at you as an example, actually. And I would say like, you know, Sam, you're not an example of what people think when they hear the phrase, follow your passion. The issue with follow your passion is that people took it to mean the passion pre-exists. I have to identify the passion first. Once the passion is identified, I use that to choose my career path. Because that path matches the pre-existing passion, I feel this great fulfillment in it. The reality I talk about in that book is that passion is often cultivated over time. So the goal is not necessarily to avoid or discount the value of feeling passionate about your career. It's discounting the pre-identification strategy. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I would argue without knowing a lot of the details that if we went back to, you know, Sam Harris in graduate school, uh, it was neuroscience. Was, was it neuroscience? The, yeah. 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 Before a uh, letter to a Christian nation and said, okay, Sam, like, what's your passion? You aren't going to be like, okay, let me explain to you this sort of like public intellectual media empire idea that where I'm going to be in 2020 and I'm going to follow that goal. If you back construct it, I'm sure it was a lot more haphazard. You know, you wrote this book and that book led to this book, this book led to this, this, and it, it occurred more haphazardly. And I argue in the book, that's nine, nine times out of 10. I, I deconstruct case study after case study in the book of people who often publicly said later in their career, follow your passion. And I would go back and look at their career paths and say, they had no idea. Hmm. They had no idea when they were first starting off and, you know, Steve Jobs yeah. is the opening story, but I do have an alternative. So, so what I talk about in that book is think about your career a little bit more like a marketplace. As you get good at things that are rare and valuable, that gives you leverage over your situation. Apply that leverage to, to move your career towards a more resonant image and away from an image that's not resonant. How do you figure that out? Well, you need to be doing the necessary reflection and thinking and exposure to the, the, build and evolve an image of a, a fully developed life that's important to you. I call it lifestyle-centered career planning. So you, you kind of gain self-knowledge. Like, do I, am I want to get after it and be like really impactful? Do I want to be connected to a community? Is being in nature really important? Does work stress me out? Do I really enjoy working? Uh, so you kind of build an image of a lifestyle and then you build rare and valuable skills and use it as currency to invest to try to get what you're looking for. So I have this much more functionalist approach to career development where the exchange is, if I want things that's going to make my working life great, I have to offer something great in, ex- in exchange for that. So I'm going to very systematically build up skills and then use that as leverage to, I don't want to work in an office. I want to just live over here. Mm-hmm. I want to make a lot of money. I want to be involved with a lot of interesting art, whatever it is. And so it's like this economic trade-off, build rare and valuable skills, use that as leverage to gain things that resonate and things that don't. It will lead you to passion for your life, but you didn't start with the passion full formed uh, at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that leads me to a final question about the power of incentives, because um, which I can see very much operative in my own life and operative right in the place you, you just described. Because so to rewind to um, you know, my career after my first book, when I was still struggling to finish my PhD, you know, at that point, podcasting wasn't yet a thing. If you had described this coming thing to me at that point that's essentially like, you know, asynchronous radio, I would have bet my life and maybe the lives of everyone on the planet that I would have had no interest in doing that, right? You know, if you'd said, you're going to go into radio, I would say there's absolutely no way I'm going into radio. And yet 
the technology was just different enough and its implications were different enough that I found myself, you know, more or less meandering into it. And with respect to writing, it now represents a, a massive opportunity cost for me, right? So like I have this abstract idea that I would like to be writing another book, but all the incentives are aligned in the in the wrong direction for me. I mean, it's writing a book is harder, it takes longer, it's a worse business, and I reach fewer people, right? So, like, insofar as my as I'm interested in any rational thing, which is you know, I, I care about how many people I'm reaching, I care about the you know the economic implications of how I'm using my time, I care about something that I've finished being quickly manifest in the world as opposed to, you know, waiting in the machine of New York publishing for the better part of a year before it sees the light of day. I mean, all of the things are upside down with respect to the incentives. And so I find myself, as if by magic, finding it very difficult to set aside time to write the next book because it is a massive opportunity cost with respect to everything else. How would you think, I mean, I I know this, there may be some version of exactly this problem in your life. How would you think about that? I mean, it's a threat. That, I think, is a threat in particular for the idea nonfiction space because mm-hmm. it's, it, it's really for the first time these incentives are shifting. I mean, you know these economics well. I know these economics well. If you're, if you're a, a successful idea nonfiction writer, the money there is very appealing. I mean, and it's optimizing. It used to be optimizing your, optimizing the potential of your particular cognitive skills. It's like, okay, I can make the money of a whatever, a law partner without having to work a uh, hundred hours a week and, and a professor job will never do that and speeches, right? So the incentives were right. Podcasting is screwing with that. You know, it's uh, like Tim was early to this as well. Tim Ferriss yeah. made a lot of money off his books, but the, the economics in the winner take all, it's a winner take all economy like we talked about before and idea writers, um, which I'm using that term incredibly broadly, of course, but idea writers are particularly well suited to that form. And the winner take all economics suddenly means, wait a second, you could be making way more money from that than even books. I don't think that's ever been out there before. I'm thinking about in writing, like the, so I think the incentives, and this is just a, I'm just thinking about this as an aside. I wonder if the incentives will have to scale. Like it happened in fiction. So you, you had the nineties, for example, the movie right wars between Crichton and Grisham, mm-hmm. where they were going at it and their agents would say things like, I want the Crichton deal plus $1, you know? And then the Crichton guy, okay, I'm going to beat the Grisham deal. And uh, advances for fiction writers, just especially those type of blockbuster fiction writers went through the roof. And then Patterson innovated the whole, like, I have a corporate industry that's in partnership with my publisher and they had to match it. So long-term, I think it's going to trickle into just the the structure of book advances. I think book money is going to go up for a certain subset of writers to the point where can we get Sam back, you know, to write another book, you know? So I think that, that might, that might happen. But so I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, like I'm in a weird place with podcasting. It's uh, it hasn't quite caught up to how much I make in royalties from my most successful book, but it, it, it's more or less where I'm getting, it matches my advance payments for the book I'm writing now. So I'm, I'm at a, it's, it's an right. interesting tipping point that I'm at. So I, I think that's going to be the, I think that's going to be the solution. But on the other hand, I like writing books right now. So I'm not yet burnt out on it. And I like the, I like the permanence of it, you know, and I don't yeah. know how to measure yeah. these things. I mean, if we use concrete numbers, like take a book like Deep Work, 
that you know in us has done something like one and a half million copies if we, if we look at all the formats and then you know my podcast it's not that old but has eight million downloads or something like that right so you would say oh the podcast is reaching a lot more people but probably that book deep work has had a lot more impact because there's a different relationship to i own this artifact and i've read it three times and then i've told people about it and, and so I, I still hold out hope that there is some power in that but also i'm an intellectual masochist in that i sort of i'm not happy if i'm not in the i don't know that salt mine of i'm an academic of writing and it's hard and you're you know yeah. i pride myself in that masochism of like put me in coach i'm going to write another i'm going to write the fifth article of the last few months for the new yorker i'm going to do another book deal there, i still have that thread in me right now yeah well also i just feel that writing is the situation where i think the most clearly but really by definition i mean there's just no way that you know however slowly i speak and i i am aware that i speak slowly i'm still not getting it exactly right even if i do a pretty good job just by speaking right and so there's a reason why writing is so much harder than just having a conversation uh, or speaking extemporaneously solo in a, in a solo podcast so it's just a circumstance where you know, I think, you know, Bacon's famous adage is borne out. I mean, you really don't know what you think until you write it at bottom. And so just insofar as I care to be a careful thinker who's not wrong about his cherished opinions, I want to be writing. And, and the truth is, I, I still do some writing, even in preparation for certain podcasts. But yeah, I do view it as a loss. You know, it's just to me personally, and, and I, I have the same infatuation with books that I think you probably have, and I'm you know, surrounded by thousands of them, and I, and I read a lot professionally and, and for pleasure. So it's, I'm a total bibliophile, but it is, it is not just the money part. Even if we equalize that, it's the immediacy and the, insofar as you're going to touch anything of topical relevance, where yep. why wait for a book to come out on the topic when I can actually talk to more people than I'm likely to reach in a decade with my next book right now, and it'll be out, it could be out in hours if I want it to be. You know, granted, it's more ephemeral and the relationship with, with audio is different than with text, but in, it does cut both ways. In some ways, audio is more compelling for people. So I don't, you know, I don't know. It's just, it, it is, you know, as you can hear, it's a personal pain point for me, which I'm, you know, trying to figure out. But I just do notice that incentives, uh, as if by magic, really do enforce their, their pressure, even when you're not consciously thinking about them. You just get up and do the thing you're, you're massively incentivized to do. Are you, uh, are you bullish or bearish on the like, five-year future of that particular space of blockbuster nonfiction idea books? You know, I, I don't know because, well, I guess if it's, if it's truly winner-take-all, well, then maybe the, the economics are there, but... But Gladwell's, Gladwell's basically stopped writing. He's the right. work on Pushkin, and he was kind of at the top. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he, I mean, I don't know what his actual book contracts were, but I'm sure they were, they were great. Well, I mean, I have this theory that they need to lean back into the lifestyle component of writing. The, I don't want to, I don't want to think about business. I want to just, you know, I want to bring me into the city. I'm hanging out with other interesting writers. I'm just writing. I don't have to worry about any details. That there, there may be a, a the play is going to have to be a lifestyle, cultural type play. That this is just a artistically, intellectually fulfilling thing to do. Now, this is going to be a hard sell, but but you think about the stories of like Bill McKibben, 
Mm. Bill McKibben on track to be editor, potentially editor at the New Yorker. He's one of the people that, that Bill Sean had tapped as like, maybe you'll be the, the next editor when I leave. And that didn't happen. And he just, he moves to a cabin. He's like, I'm going to the Adirondacks. I'm going to live in a cabin. I'm, I'm going to write books on you know, environmental issues, stuff I care about. And I interviewed him about this. And, and then he moved to a, a town in Vermont once they had a kid that had like a school, but it was still, it's a small town. I drove through it when I was there this summer. And he's like, yeah, we, uh, me and his wife, Susan Halpern, who writes for the New Yorker, they're like, we live cheap. And we just, I don't know, we just, they just for years were just, we want to live in nature and write books. And like the publishing industry is great at that. Like, great. Yeah. Send us your manuscript. We'll take care of the rest. This is the New Yorker strategy, which I think is very smart. Their whole strategy for acquiring good writing talent is we want this to be by far your favorite place you've ever written for. So they really care a lot about the experience of actually like working for, for the magazine. And, and so I think that's really smart. So maybe that's what it's going to take is a, you know, a move, move away from the business and just like, you're a smart guy and uh, you can make a living doing this and it's romantic. And yeah. we'll take care yeah. of all the details of distribution and shipping and copy editing and, and all that nonsense and just, you know, live in the Adirondacks and send us your manuscripts and come, you know, chat at Arthur parties. Like that might, maybe that's going to be what they fall, fall back onto is the smart people who can write interesting books, don't really have the entrepreneurial zeal to succeed on their own or aren't really that interested in it. Maybe that's where it's going to come down to sell the lifestyle. We'll, we'll supply the cabin. You know, editors used to bring. They don't do this much, but one of the editors who bid on one of my uh, digital minimalism, I remember talking about he was at the house in the, some house in the Hamptons where they had sequestered an author, mm-hmm. one of the big name authors. And they're like, do more of that, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. sell lifestyle. Like that's probably, that's probably what's going to come down to is like, uh, yeah. like the lost generation writing, you know, for uh, writing back then for the, the, the great editors of, of that different period. Yeah. Well, I think I just came in on the tail end of that. I mean, it's been a long time since I've moved in in editorial circles in Manhattan but you know when I was you know publishing books regularly and and you know would would finish one and then go on to the next I just remember what it was like to go into those offices and uh it was just sort of at the kind of the twilight of the the business model where things were you could the writing was on the wall but it still there was a glamour to you know meeting the editor at in one of those offices and, and maybe, maybe that's still going on, but you know, there, there's something, I think there's kind of a, a, at least well, I get the sense there's more of a, a grim realism about the business and the precariousness of the business. Now it's not like they're, la- you know, I, I would imagine that they're, they're not the same lavish book launch parties in the Hamptons, but um, unless you're James Patterson. Yeah. But then it's at yeah. your house. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Even (laughs) even your ghost writers own houses in the Hamptons if you're James Patterson. Well, Cal, it's been great to speak with you. Thank you for so much of uh, your time. Uh, And, uh, you know, as a man who guards his time, you have given me a lot of it. So uh, I am uh, greatly appreciative of it. And I think people will really find this useful and interesting. Well, no, I appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation.